I wanted to uh, read you uh, like a, a welcome to our ongoing series. Uh, it's untitled, uh, and at this point, I don't think it'll get a title because, uh, but it's a story. Uh, if it had, if it, it does have a clear story, but you really got to like, a, it's more of a snoozy dreamlike story that you don't really need to listen to. And if you, if you want to listen to calm yourself down during the day, you'd say, well, yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't really, uh, but the facts are it's a, it's a young woman and a young girl that lives in a theme park and being raised by a theme park is really all the details. And uh, to transition you, I'm going to read uh, and quote and paraphrase from a Wikipedia article on conservatories, uh, the greenhouse type. So rest in, as they tell you, a conservatory is a building or a room that has a glass or tarpaulin, uh, I don't know how to say that word, actually, roofing, and walls used as a greenhouse or sunroom. Uh, if it was used in a residence, it might be attached to a house on only one side. Conservatories originated in the 16th century when wealthy landowners sought to cultivate citrus roots such as lemon and oranges uh, that began to appear on dinner tables brought from warmer regions in the Mediterranean. Municipal conservatories became popular in the 18th century. Many cities, especially those in close climate, cold climates with large European populations, have built municipal conservatories to display tropical plants and flower displays. Uh, this type of conservatory was popular in the early 19th century, and people were also giving them a social use, like tea parties. The conservatory architecture varies from Victorian glass houses to modern styles, such as geodesic domes. Uh, there are many large and impressive structures. Uh, in the UK, it has a legal definition. Conservatory is a building that has 50% of its side wall uh, glazed and 70%, 5% of its roof glazed with translucent materials, either polycarbonate sheeting or glass. Uh, today, the su- terms the sunroom, solarium, and conservatory are used interchangeably. Uh, but uh, the term conservatory, and particularly English conservatory, evoked the in- image of an ornate structure echoing the tradition of the eras of the uh, Victorian era of conservatory building. And they're built around the world. Uh, they started with preservation, as you said, of citrus fruits, tender plants. Uh, they started out being built uh, as like just crudely over uh, potted plants or beds, uh, removing plants indoors. Uh, known in Italy as the limon, limonia, limonia. Uh, the early structures had wood panels in storerooms or open galleries. Uh, further north, uh, they wanted to preserve orange trees, uh, special purpose buildings to protect the tasty but delicate fruit, orangeries, uh, as they became to be called, were uh, typically enclosed uh, in structures built with wood stone or tall vertical windows. And then they became uh, used to like a wider variety of plants used socially. Uh, greenhouses were rooms and conservatories were to, to, for tender plants. Uh, in the 18th century, a Dutch scientists pioneered the use of sloping glass to bring in more light for the plants than the tall, wide, uh, glass-sized uh, sidewalls of orangeries. 
Yeah, but the 18th century was the golden age of conservatory building in England. Uh, they were the product of the love of gardening and new technology and glass and heating. And many of the magnificent public conservatories built of iron and glass are a result of this area, including Kew, Kew Gardens in London. And uh, for rare and tender plants, sometimes for birds and rare animals, uh, sometimes all living together. Uh, that stopped during WW2, but then with the insulated glass in the 50s and 60s, saw more simple sunroom structures. And then again in the 70s, people started to recreate the Victorian style of the 19th century uh, using insulated glass. Uh, contemporary construction of conservatory differs from an orangery and having 75% of its surface on the roof made of glass and uh, 50% of its walls. Uh, and contemporary ones use technologies to make sure the energy is as efficient as possible, letting in the max amount of light while maintaining a steady room temperature. Uh, they could include argon impregnated glass, heat reflective film, thermal ribbons, thermal breaks, or hollow sections of glass that intercept heat. So that's a little bit about conservatories. Ah, yes, when you arrived here with me, uh, it's good to tell you a tale of how you came to me. You were very young. You spent some uh, very quality length of time uh, inside my walls, uh, under my roof, uh, not just inside, but outside, too. And, you know, I've been defined as the largest greenhouse or the largest conservatory in the world, though some would argue that, uh, you know, because of the massive uh, amounts it spent, you know, that it was an unfair advantage because it was uh, paid. But I said people pay to go to municipal conservatories, and just because I'm an attraction uh, does not mean I'm just an attraction. But I, And this isn't an insult to conservatories, uh, but I, we were also a research facility as well as a conservatory or greenhouse, whichever you're more comfortable with. Uh, I mean, I was always referred to, you know, as a, as a uh, as an attraction. I, you know, I've just been learning these things as I prepared to report back to you. And it was so, and I guess this is one of the technicalities when people said, "Well." is that it was so large that I was sectioned off internally. And so you could say that because the air was not free-flowing between all my regions, uh, that it was compartmentalized in some places, uh, uh, which I guess for the guests, uh, there was there had to be AC in guest areas uh, because otherwise I would be just too, too warm. And even for the plants, we had many ways to regulate the heat in the summer because traditionally uh, where we were located, where the park was, is not exactly an area that uh, has a lot of cold weather. So some would say the conservatory was just a for show. Uh, but as, you know, with the climate, uh, I became a protective place, believe it or not, uh, and uh, where plants really do, could flourish. And because we had programs for actual, both uh, researchers that were part of the company, but also university students uh, uh, coming and working and, and doing tests. Uh, it was a very active and busy place, a very, and, and a real working 
Uh, I guess you would say, you couldn't call me a farm. I don't know why you couldn't. I guess, but, uh, you know, so many of the vegetables and uh, the economies, they, they said, wow, we can actually produce uh, most of the greens, the salads, the microgreens. We could get them of the highest quality for the restaurants uh, if that would serve the guests, uh, the tablecloth restaurants, but also some of the non-tablecloth restaurants. Uh, and those were the first, of course, to close when as things began to change. And so they needed less and less vegetables. Uh, it's strange with the changing of the times, uh, people ate less vegetables. Uh, yeah, but I guess it's neither here nor there. I mean, it was... Uh, it, it, at my boom time, I was producing the majority of vegetables. Uh, not all vegetables. Some had to be purchased and brought in. Uh, but you would have been impressed, and that's why I was. That was the vision the engineers had. Uh, and then there was another vision they had, which was a rebranding and a refurbishment for me, uh, because while my behind-the-scenes uh, business uh, was booming, the ability to grow plants, uh, to, for, for people to say, well, let's test this out. This is a perfect environment. It's a very, uh, climate controlled. And because I was able to filter the new light, you know, the light, uh, a little bit, uh, uh, the plants were getting just the right amount of sunlight and not, uh, overexposed to solar beams. And there's another reason why we flourished so much in supplying the uh, the restaurant's food. But where I fell short, I guess, was on the guest, uh, uh, you know, the guest satisfaction or the popularity. It was never the most popular. We had a boat ride through my greenhouses uh, or a greenhouse or conservatory. And, of course, from the outside, it was very impressive, like a nouveau Victoria. I don't know what they called it, uh, uh, nouveau. They, 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 the critics also were split on it. Uh, but a modernized Victorian structure, you know, to give me a regal but modern look uh, uh, with my glass and iron and all those things. Uh, so I looked very impressive. And I had some nice places to eat inside, but then the attraction, and then we had a, like a show, a tronics show, which towards the end went away, uh, and it was about the food groups, and then about, you know, eating your greens, uh, different, like tronics, uh, dancing and singing, but that was gone when you came. You would have never even known it was there. But that was not the main, so the refurbishment, they said, well, the, the guests don't like to just ride around and look at plants and hear explanations, uh, except for the ones that really like it, but that was a small percentage. And so people would sleep on my boat ride, or they would go to, uh, get, get, interestingly enough, escape the heat uh, from the weather inside a greenhouse, which was, uh, it depended on the A.C., and, you know, that would make it uh, not super tolerable for you, but you were already adjusted to the heat, so you didn't really mind, and you had designed ways to cross-breeze things. Uh, and also, well, we'll see. We'll get to you, well, your involvement. But they did a refurb and made me into a biosphere, by name only, a fictional biosphere. I went from the largest conservatory, conservatory in the world to being a... 
uh, fake biosphere so they could tell the story of three families that volunteered. And, but this was essential in your development, so I guess it was a good thing. I was frustrated. I said, what am I, not good enough? Uh, I have to have a story, of course. All these engineers and the story makers or whatever they're called. And they said it'll be the tale of these three families, and, and it won't be a conservator anymore. It'll be a biosphere modeled for, to, to start on other planets into testing out technology that could be used. Uh, and I guess they said, they said, wow, they did have foresight. We didn't end up on any other planets other than fictionally. Uh, but anybody that had a biosphere with its own cooling was in great, would have been in great shape. Uh, but I was not a sealed bio. I mean, I was mostly sealed bio. But, you know, I wasn't designed as a biosphere. You go in and you stay in and everything is self-contained is the story. And that is actually what a biosphere is, I believe. You know, sealed off from the world. Uh, this family was volunteering uh, for some time, uh, an unspecified amount of time, longer than a year, uh, and the children were various ages, so that the story could also not reflect just plants, but the children could relate uh, to the three different families, three different families from around the world, too. And they could introduce the diversity of both their cultures and of their uh, fruits and vegetables, and of the planting, you know, the modernization of planting. And they said that'll get guests interested in plants. They love technology and stories. But I, and I think they, you know, some of these engineers, the storage engineers or whatever they call them, is they were really involved. They said, okay, let's really follow these children more than the adults. They're more interesting. And they engage with plants and, and vegetables in a different way. And so it'll be interesting. And let's watch them grow up throughout the ride. And what 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 could be better fate wise uh, for you? And you had a lot to learn when you got here. So thank goodness for these wild ideas that the engineers had. Uh, and also, it was just strange when you arrival because I was in need of some care. If I was to be anything other than, because when you came, I was uh, mostly an empty shell, other than the biosphere story. You know, most of my plants, uh, people had taken, you know, employees, they said, just take the rest of the plants home and see what you could do with them. So some of my facilities were left, uh, some things were taken, my canal was drained, uh, so I had no more canal for boats to travel on. I just had the families, uh, and again, I guess they uh, they really did a good job, uh, you know, making like on these refurbs, the quality of the technology was so simple. A lot of it, uh, you know, they were doing cost savings, but using technology in a unique way. So, yeah, but as this as things slowed down, so did my use, and so did the researchers stopped researching. And then, you know, restaurants stopped serving microgreens and microcarrots and all those things. Uh, uh, so I was glad you were here as well. And, of course, before you got here, the caretaker had come and made sure all my bulbs were fixed and uh, that some of my fans were working. Well, we don't have AC anymore. We did have some fans to circulate the air.
and then you got there, and you couldn't really speak. You could make uh, noises, uh, and I know you could listen because uh, I had heard about you with your mother goose and, and, and interacting with those characters. Uh, so words kind of called to you. So as you found the triggers for the ride, and some of the ride elements were designed once to be triggered in the start of the day and the close of the day. So once you figured out those triggers, which were easy for you, uh, you were called to the characters uh, in the story, to the families, to the children, and their words. Uh, but because my, you wanted to ride in my boat canal, but you couldn't figure out how to turn it on. Uh, so you just walked around along the banks of the canal, and you, at first you followed the whole story, but then uh, you the whole story. I think they were called the Biosphere Bunch, uh, and that name never took off. Uh, but every once in a while they'd say, "Oh, here we are with the Biosphere Bunch." Maybe that was what the kids called it. They had the little because uh, they had a treehouse, but we'll, we'll come to that. Well, yeah, you had these fictional three families sealed in the biosphere uh, to live together. And it didn't really make a big difference to you. You just said, hmm, who are these children? And, and the first thing you noticed was uh, one of the first scenes with the family, which was a natural, again, I guess I'm struck, uh, that some of the children were getting bedtime stories. Uh, they all slept in a dormitory together. And they were new, and they were they were getting to know one another, and they were all different ages. So some of them were close in age, so they could be friends. And so they had this scene in the dormitory where the children were adjusting to life in the biosphere, and they were getting read bedtime stories. And there were three different stories going on with uh, a sibling and two different parental figures, uh, reading to different children, groups of children, and different stories. Uh, now, they did all, at one time, the Geneas did have it in three different languages, uh, but because, it, I, I don't know, there was a whole argument about that and uh, about the volumes of the three different stories. Uh, but so the, at this time, they were in English. This was like a, a version 2.1 or something. But because of the technology at the time, the affordability, the, the books were uh, both not real and real. They were projected books. Uh, so at three different beds, there was someone sitting with a book in their lap, which was just a blank. Uh, it looked like a book, but it was really just a screen. And projected on it was the story. And because of the like digital technology... Yeah, they, 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 this was, again, a battle the Geneas. This was like when the budgets were still, when the money was flowing. And the Geneas behind this ride said, let's have, a, like, a really, like, a, so this rewritability, a cookie level. There was uh, thousands of hours of stories between these three uh, storytellers, readers, and they were actually reading and the the text was going on, being projected onto the page as they were reading it. I mean, of course, it was just an MP3 file, like a digital file of their audio. And you were able to sit there. And now, the beds weren't really mattresses, uh, but you did your own. kind, of, And you even moved the children out of the beds, uh, which I thought was funny. 
And you would get in there and you would first just listen to the stories for comfort every few hours. Uh, and then at nighttime and you would sleep in there. Uh, you had to bring your own, you had to eventually find a mattress uh, and bring it in. And if, if, as nights and nights wore on, uh, you know, the stories, because you could start them and start them. You didn't know you didn't have control over skipping them, but they just advanced uh, in a tiered way through the thousand hours. So, you know, you could repeat a story with a different parental figure uh, like a day or two later. I think I, I can't remember how the loops were figured. But there was so much for you to read, and they were reading simple children's books. Uh, and then one of the, the older siblings was reading a little bit more of a, you know, like a reader, early reader, I think they called them. And so eventually you were able to sit along in the parents' lap uh, and read along with them. And I'm sure, I don't know if you imagined it, like uh, what the relationship was. Uh, to be honest, you seem more interested in the uh, the stories and the words in uh, the sounds all coming together for you. I think your brain was really grasping it and processing it uh, and following along with them. Just a weird quirk of technology, uh, more than your relationship with these, because they were static uh, figures. They were more statues. Uh, the projection technology was what gave the motion. Uh, but one thing you also started to notice with the stories was that uh, many, as many as possible, were about plants and growth and germination. And uh, that was what the next scene with the family was like actual in front of the working greenhouses. Uh, and the scene was uh, the children learning about germination and how a seed first germinates. And you did seem fixated on that as well. Uh, and because, of, again, the technology, it said, oh, wow, uh, this is – it was like an understanding clicked in you. Because then they had videos about germination, and then that's the first stage of growth. And this is where you started to test because uh, – you found the seed, the seed vaults, uh, and I guess I don't know. You know the playful hand of the caretaker interrupting your nat. I guess uh, caring for you and taking care. You found the seed vault uh, in the door. You know you didn't have to worry about it being locked, uh, though it had been closed for a long time. So the seeds were intact in the seed vault, and the seed vault was very symbol based. Uh, so all the seeds were both labeled with words and symbols, and this was perfect for where you were at. And the caretaker had been supplying you with some vegetables for food. Uh, but I think they had a vision for you. And so you would take seeds and you would take water and you were trying to germinate the seeds. And because it was kind of warm, uh, the seeds would start to germinate, but then they wouldn't grow because one thing that I was lacking, even as a conservatory, was light. Uh, and we hadn't talked about that, but that was because over the years, uh, there's so much debris and algae and mud had covered up all of my windows. Uh, so without artificial light, it was very, very dark and sad. No natural light coming in, and we didn't have plant lights, uh, really. Uh, that was the whole purpose of a conservatory, was uh, that there was natural light coming in. And uh, you, you figured it out, you know, just by watching the videos and, 
You also discovered that our our our, our uh, gift shop, my gift shop, I guess, uh, was uh, also the largest library or bookstore. I guess it wasn't. It became a library for you. <laughs> uh, but also in the seed vault was also a lot of the the paper storage uh, because it was, it was so climate controlled and. Uh, so you had so many books to look through, and so many of them were about plants, but there were also books about other things. You weren't really reading much at this point. You were more looking at pictures and trying to understand as each night you read along with the bedtime stories. And then it was this was a tough time, and I said, this caretaker, I don't get it, the caretaker, what the caretaker's up to. Because the caretaker had left out or prepared all the things for window washing. My windows had never been washed, but I said, why can't the caretaker do that? Uh, You're just a little kid. Well, you figured out. You looked at the sunlight. You went outside. You rubbed a a hole in the window. You tried to grow a plant just with a few windows uh, that you could clear out. Uh, And then you saw the icons and the pictures for the window washing, which was, again, not word-based in instruction. It showed a person pushing the green button up, uh, the red button down, uh, which lines to pull on, even the soap distribution, because it was right to the side of a little closet. Uh, Now, this one needed much more elbow grease, because a lot of the rubber in the squeegees was no longer working. So you did have to scrub. And then you set forth and cleaned my windows, uh, or as many of them. You know, not like a sparkling, like opening day or anything like that. Uh, There was no waxing. But you washed off my windows, and I was over a long, long period of time. And you grew... And you actually seemed like you were becoming a better read. You were starting to read, maybe, or read along. Uh, because at some point, a lot of the stories started to be to their tiered looping. And so, uh, I don't know. And I said, how much time has gone by that she's washing these windows? Uh, and you had your little belt and you were clipped in. And I guess I started to get some pride. And then your light was in there. And you could create a seedling. And this was what was interesting. And I guess what was driving you was because then the children had grown. Uh, and the next stage of the biosphere was the children were then assigned to read to plants. Uh, and not just a germinating plant, but the seedling, the growing plants. Uh, and you would read, watch and read more with the children, read along with them. But you would also watch, they had a very complicated projection illusion to show a plant going from germination to a seedling, to budding and flowering. And, you know, the adults explaining these things and making it as, as interesting as they could. But then you got to sit with the children as they sound, I couldn't couldn't believe this, uh, they were reading, some of the children, you know, they had all the different ages, but that was one of the children's jobs. Uh, and it was a trick that they explained. The adults said, well, this is a way to weave work and school into one because the plants need attention. And then they even showed how it would be broadcast to the moon base uh, and the biosphere there. 
and to the plants on the moon base that didn't have children to read to the plants on the moon base. Uh, but, you know, that it has a real effect possibly on plants, but also the children needed to have their reading time. So some of the older children were doing quiet reading, and some of the younger children were sounding out, and there was even one a teen to help them while they sounded things out and they were learning. And then you were sounding words out with the children, and then actually pulling books and trying to do it on your own. Now, that was very frustrating for you. Because you didn't have a fictional or real adult figure to help you. You had to learn. And you would slam the books closed sometimes. Uh, and the children, you, you know, it was uh, acting. So it wasn't like they were actually struggling to read like you were. To understand uh, the sounds and the letters. Uh, and to create a like a picture vocabulary in your mind. But you did have picture dictionaries, which were nice. Uh, and that was a good way to learn. But it was not easy. No, no, no. And I think your frustration also stemmed from the fact that you couldn't, you couldn't get a seedling to take because you had this sandy soil you were just bringing in from the outside. And it had kind of been depleted as the grasses had it depleted the soil. Uh, uh, where they just had, you know, to, to make the spots of the park look very presentable. And you, you, then you heard, uh, like, uh, the next presentation where the adults were talking about the nutrients and nutrient film and how they at the biosphere had a closed system, which we did not have. That was fictional, where even the methane was generating power but they closed a system of, gray, you know, all the waters, the gray and the non-gray waters, uh, using that to help create the nutrients for the plants uh, with also the other things they were eating. But you didn't have that closed system. You looked for it, uh, but it was fictional and projected. And you grew very, very frustrated. And any of uh, supplies like that on the inside had been gone as people kind of said, as the workers said, well, I'll just take this home. I want to grow my own food at home. And eventually you would go, you and also because the temperature was so fluctuating inside, sometimes you would go outside, or if it was raining, or the, you know, the weather had changed. Uh, and you discovered behind, out behind my conservatory these big mounds uh and this is where the words clicked, everything clicked for you on these great mounds. If you only knew what was underneath the mounds, uh, but eventually you did. As you lied in them, and this was spring, and the clover and the vetch uh, were flowering. And at one point you were lying there looking at it. Uh, I think you're cooling down from a frustration from reading and you realize clover from your books, and you ran and got the book, and you looked at the pictures of the clover and the vetch, and you kind of sound those words out, so you had a joy from that, and you realized uh, uh, that that was being talked about in the same place where plants were growing, and it was a book about compost, compost for kids it was called, and you started digging, and... Uh, this compost had been there for a long, long time. And it was a very professionally made compost from all the restaurants at the park. As I said, they could harvest so many things that were vital to compost. Uh, you know, different meals, uh, you know, not people's meals, but yes, like uh, 
and different organics and coffee grounds and nitrogen fixing plants and me- like oh meals I guess I already said fish you know from the fish and from the land animals uh, there was stuff from the zoos and the stables in there and it all now it didn't need to be mixed uh, so it took you a while again but you had the time to experiment and eventually that was a lot of work for you turning over one of these giant mounds uh in the layers of compost but as you did this was rich rich and mixed with sandy soil oh when you started planting in that uh things really took off just like in the image and then you moved on your reading was still coming along slowly but the next scene with the family and the children was the one return to the future. The future returns to the past, one of the adults explained, in the one-room schoolhouse where the older children, you know, the children had grown too. And the older children and the, a couple of the adults, uh, you know, the children were trying to teach each other, teach themselves and learn from one or two adult figures. And again, this was mostly fixated on reading this whole ride. My attraction is storyline. Uh, they didn't have any arithmetic, luckily, because I'm not a fan of that. I guess I am a fan of it, but... Uh, and so you would be in the schoolhouse again, in, in, learning deeper, and then having your own physical books, too, and seeing the phonics and the coding, decoding or whatever the children do, and even some writing, watching them write and... Again, I guess these projections, uh, they had so much material they could use. Because uh, he said, what if a guest is, is, sits on the ride for three hours in a row? I want everything to be different, the engineer said. But also at this time, you had started to, you know, your reading was growing. Your curiosity was growing about what more I had. And you found some of the growing rooms, like vertical planters and horizontal drip irrigation planters. And they were in fairly deep disuse, uh, so you were taking it apart and looking at it, and, you know, you were physically watering your plants and still learning about watering properly. And you saw many of the the rides explaining the power of the vertical planters, or what you were like, well, which works with compost in the drip irrigation and then you even found, eventually you got into one of the control panels for the drip irrigation system. And decoding that took a very long time because it was full of diagrams and and jargon, uh, some of which you had just had to experiment. Plus you had to scale it down because this was for a whole giant grow house. Uh, and you really didn't need to grow that much. And you were already having some success in beginning to grow your own the greens, uh, and then tomatoes, and then cucumbers. Uh, but it was a lot of work, and you had, you know, you had books to read, and, you know, you were becoming, uh, uh, going from a uh, child to a, I don't know what, what they call it, uh, your stages of growth were staging on. And you were in the schoolhouse pretending... And I think because this was not as hard as some of the other attractions for you, because of the plants, uh, you were able to uh, project and invest some of that energy into the plants, and you were able to talk to the plants, and you knew they were living 
unlike the attraction, which was a, an illusion of living and a fiction of biosphering, uh, I think the plants gave you a connection uh, that you needed, uh, that they were more than just sustaining you. It wasn't really, you know, it's it's not easy for you uh, being a child. You know, we were doing our best, uh, I guess, giving you the challenge. I mean, for me, I was lucky that the refurbishment happened because I couldn't teach you to read. Only you could, and I don't know if you could have taught yourself uh, with nothing else, uh, uh, but the ride, uh, the attraction, the biospherins, the biosphere bunch was able, you were able to, it was, uh, yes, it was a quirk of matter, as the doctor says. And eventually you got the, the uh, drip irrigation system working in a limited way. And you were also tempted to fill my canal, but as you learned more about water conservation, you said, well, I guess I'll go without the boat, uh, because, uh, you know, the like, I mean, it, the water situation had changed uh, because of where we were located. Uh, we were one of the spots that had plenty of fresh water, but it was good you were conserving and rotating the compost and then learning these systems as as you could read more and more, you know, and your curiosity would fill in the gaps uh, by, you know, cleaning pipes, attaching things, uh, what you couldn't read or understand your mechanical mind was able to uncover. Uh, you were able to nearly automate, uh, you know, some of the process, you know, that, that, that eventually in so much of your uh, understanding of the language uh, was tied to books uh, and stories around uh, the growth of plants. It must have been a bit, bit stale. I mean, I know you started reading the uh, the travel guide sections, into the trivia books and then the, 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 the lore of the characters in the park books. Uh, and then there was even pop fiction. Some of it, you know, you, you were able to read some of that very, uh, and luckily there was a lot there. Uh, uh, so you were able to have plenty to read uh, and it became a part of your routine, your nighttime routine of reading and winding down to relax, uh, and always reading to a plant for a little bit while until you got tired. It was the cutest thing I've ever seen. But those were the plants you took with you to the next, uh, you know, the other attractions uh, that you kept in your bag, that you kept hidden away. But you, I couldn't believe, yes, you, you got it to the point where it needed minimal supervision. And then the caretaker would sneak in, too, uh, uh, because the caretaker was mostly doing all of this on their own, uh, on their own homestead, where, wherever it was. Uh, but you had restored me, um, uh, not to my former glory, but to a place where uh, if fictional children were learning, real, a real child was learning, and plants were growing and flourishing again. And then you also tried to start growing the citrus and the oranges, uh, and that took a lot of patience and uh, and years of uh, paying attention to it as you grew, they grew. Uh, but, uh, you know, so the vegetables uh, the, and then the fish, uh, eventually you would, uh, you know, the, the, the caretaker already had that taken care of, but eventually you were to take that over too. 
And I wonder what the researchers would have said if they could came now and said, uh, oh, if these were the conditions, uh, how much would they doubt you and your ability to adjust? Uh, or would they celebrate you? You know what I mean? I, I, I have such excitement around it all. And such pride in watching you every night, reading to plants. As, uh, like I had a purpose that was fulfilled. That, uh, these, uh, I, I don't mean to judge uh, the refurbishment in the fictional family. But to have you in a real family with plants. Uh, and to have you like going through these stages uh, with, with the language of germination of being a seedling, a reedling, I guess we could have called you, my little reedling, and then budding and flowering, as you would later uh, after you left me physically, that would be at some point, but this was more your relationship with the language, budding and flowering, and getting close, and then, you know, that part of you that needed that connection, uh, at least making some of it with the plant, at least projecting some intimacy onto and into the plants, and actually maybe having some real, because these were real living beings uh, uh, that you were connected with, that you were responsible for, and that you were maintaining. And, and sometimes you couldn't maintain it, but you were constantly, I don't know what else it awakened in you. Uh, I mean, it couldn't, it's not even a metaphor, even though it is a perfect metaphor, that it started to grow in you, uh, this deeper engagement with your your curiosity. and your st- I mean, I can't believe you cleaned my windows. I, most children wouldn't be allowed to do that at all. It'd be like saying, hey, go drive a car now after you clean the windows on a window washing rig. But you didn't know that. You said, oh, this is necessary. Let it be done. Let me get to work here. And so I guess as you left, I was just struck by how honored I was to be a part of it, uh, to be here and uh, to observe you. You know, I, I, you know, I had pride in my size, but it was the small things. And I was lucky that my bookstore, my gift shop, uh, I guess because of the niching, they said, oh, well, for a long time, the only people that would ride my attraction were tired people, people that didn't want to wait in line because there was never a line, and people that loved plants. So they said, well, let's sell a lot of books to these plant lovers. And so uh, that's a big part of my history. And so, yes, uh, you know, I, I, I never had was able to rock you to sleep in my canal in my boat, like others were. But uh, I was able to watch you go through those stages and to guide others through those stages of germination, of growth, of uh, organic matter of phosphorus and nitrogen, potassium, you know, of watering, and then of a drip, drip, dripping the water out as needed. Uh and then maturing and ripening and then delivering sustenance. Uh, and also you did that with the language. It enabled you, enabled you to engage so much more deeper with me and the other attractions. 
and it gave you another tool uh, uh, to, to, to keep your journey going. And so I guess I, uh, that's how I remember it. Uh, and it's unforgettable. And uh, I forgot how the rest of you know, it's just like a, the, the story of the biospherians. Uh, you didn't really have it. Like I said, well, then the children learned. It was mostly following the children. And then them grow, they skipped a portion from, uh, they skipped the teen portion mostly. And then the children were uh, recommitting to the biosphere, and some of them had become in relationships and, and uh, start their own families. And they said, isn't it convenient that Janiers skipped over that but the middle part there? And yes, and they say, oh, next to Mars and Venus and all those things. Uh, but I was happy just with you here bringing the earth into me in the water. In the language, uh, I'm honored. Thank you. All right, welcome to our serial episodic uh, modular story. Uh, but it doesn't have a title. It doesn't even have. It no longer even has a working title. But the story works at putting you to sleep. It's about a young woman, a young child, uh, and her journeys uh, through both imagination and a theme park. Uh, and to transition you to the story, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of It's a Small World from Wikipedia. A water-based dark ride located in the Fantasyland area of Walt Disney, some Walt Disney parks in Disneyland, Magic Kingdom, uh, Tokyo Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, and Hong Kong Disneyland. It has uh, over 300 audio animatronic children in traditional costumes from cultures around the world, frolicking in a spirit of international unity, and singing the title song, which was the theme of go- which has a theme of global peace. It's the most performed song of all time, according to Time Magazine. In just a little bit about the history, it was fabricated in Burbank at the Disney Studios as Children of the World. Uh, created by Wed Enterprises and shipped to the 1964 New York World's Fair at the UNICEF Pavilion. Wow, they, when was the last World's Fair that uh, I'd like to go to a World's Fair? It was sponsored by a soda company, and uh, it was uh, that was featured at the entrance as a kinetic sculpture. Uh, the Tower of the Four Winds was a 120-foot uh, perpetually spinning mobile or Mobile, uh, created by Raleigh Crump, a web designer. And it was added to four attractions. Uh, does this have anything to do with the ride? I don't think it does. Uh, it was added to four attractions uh, already under development, which were used by Disney sponsor fund and test concepts and ride systems uh, that would be moved, rebuilt at Disneyland in 1966. That's one shrewd dude that Walter Elias. Uh, it took the sponsor a while to agree on what kind of traction they wanted, and uh, uh, they, uh, Joan Crawford got involved and said, hey, what about Walt Disney designing you an attraction? But there was a short lead time. And so according to Wikipedia, she insisted the board of directors uh, take his proposal and uh, he was already designing attractions for the state of Illinois, uh, Ford, GM, and Kodak. Uh, 
uh, other sponsors. Uh, they were all, they only had eleven months months to create and build the pavilion. Uh, Mary Blair, uh, a wonderful artist, was responsible for the whimsical design and color styling. Uh, she had been an art director on the beautiful uh, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan. And uh, like many Disneyland attractions, his scenes and characters were designed by Mark Davis. Uh, Alice Davis uh, designed the costumes. Raleigh Crump designed the toys and other supplemental figures. Uh, Blaine Gibson did the dolls. Uh, Walt uh, helped Blaine and Greg Mar- Marianello uh, do the faces. And each doll's face is completely identical in shape. Uh, aero development was involved in the uh, design of the passenger boats and the propulsion system. Uh, they got two patents out of it. Uh, and, you know, that helped out in making Disneyland... As far as the 1964 World's Fair goes, uh, the first, that was the first incarnation of the ride. And it almost didn't happen, as we said. Uh, Disney was already busy with a bunch of other attractions, uh, they, but they had been working on a dancing doll uh, design, uh, which would become the foundation for audio animatronics like Ava Lincoln. And they uh, kind of like using robotics and stuff like that. They had a Circle Vision movie they were working on. And they said, hey, we want to do a tribute to UNICEF. Uh, and Disney seemed to, to be the showman to give the package they wanted. Uh, he's terrific. He's got his hands in more bowls than anyone I've ever seen, but he accomplishes what he sets out to do. That was J.G. Mullally, the World's Fair program director. Uh, and according to April, on April 22nd, 1964, the opening day, uh, this quote is from the guidebook to the uh, New York State Fair, New York's World's Fair. A salute to the children of the world designed by Walt Disney presents animated figures frolicking in miniature settings of many lands. Uh, visitors are carried past the scenes in small boats. Uh, uh, they also, in an adjoining building, had other exhibits uh, from UNICEF. Above the pavilion it rises a 120-foot tower of the four winds, a fanciful recreation of colored shapes that dance and twist in the breeze. Uh, the attraction was incredibly successful. $10 million, 60 cent and 95-cent tickets for children and adults were sold in two and a half seasons, and the proceeds were donated to UNICEF. Uh, while other attractions had really long lines, there was always a seat available on Small World because it had a higher rider per hour capacity, which was a valuable innovation and incorporated in, in directly into future attractions like Pirates. Uh, uh, and uh, that's So that's a little bit about uh, It's a Small World as you gently uh, ride a boat uh, and you drift along. Uh, in an artificial canal. So comforting, though. Uh, yes, it was a pleasure to meet you. Uh, and I didn't have my chance to introduce myself, my world of toys. Uh, you know, once upon a time before you came, I was a celebration of play around the world. And of all the advancements in toy technology... And all the joy that advancements in toy technology brought to the children of the world. 
And also, in reality, my ride was uh, capturing the joy of the toys. That was what the song, uh, the toys sang, uh, uh, was that the joy the children brought to the toys. My attraction hasn't sung in ages. Maybe it'll never sing again. But that was the essential message, that it was... uh, being played with, and again, they would make a movie about this in another way. Uh, but it was that uh, the toys are happy when they're played with, and the children are happy when they're playing with the toys. Another thing you didn't get to see was all the sparkling. There were sparkles in almost every costume, in every uh, toy, in every surface, uh, is sparkles, so I really sparkled once upon a time. And there was a lot of motion. Uh, can, I think they called it kinetic motion, uh, clocks and moving and flying and and dancing and singing and toys just tops us spinning. Uh, but there's just no more in motion, as you saw. I wish you could have seen it. Uh, maybe you would have, uh, maybe you would have treated me differently than you did. Because uh, now I have a different kind of motion, thanks to you. And yeah, I had my critics. There was lots of critics uh, of my attraction. But they really couldn't find their way around that catchy tune. You know, they would say that I was just an advertisement. Uh, uh, ride uh, to, to, to tell children to play with toys. With the founder... Uh, was very intelligent for the ride was thick with nostalgia for almost anyone over the age of 10. They would remember the first toy they played with and, and they would even see themselves in some of the characters or relate to the characters, uh, playing with their toys and, and they would feel good about the toys, joy, the joy of the toys uh, being played with. And yes, there were those that constantly complained of the infectiousness of my song. And they would say it was over syrupy and over sugary. And if the ride got stuck, they would talk about its mindlessness. Uh, and even some of the workers would wear hidden earplugs uh, so they wouldn't run around singing the song for the rest of their lives. But for most people, the song just stuck in their head, a pleasant little tune about the world of toys and uh, going to Toy Town and about Playcorp, uh, the sponsor of my attraction. There were even those over the years that called my attraction propaganda and said, well, Playcorp also makes all these other things uh, as part of the, you know, the MI complex, uh, and, the, the, you know, the toys are a distraction. Uh, but really the only, like, uh, I don't even remember the song now. It's been so long. I, it might, they said it was so infectious, but now I can't even remember it. Uh, I do remember that they said when the village, when the world's a village, uh, all of the joy is in toys and the toys are overjoyed with the global village or something like that. Uh, uh, but you arrived under my, well, my former current conditions. When you arrived, that was my current, I had current conditions. Now I have another set of current conditions.
and neither or neither was the same as when I was at the World's Fair or when I was built here. Originally, it was a soda corp that, uh, and when the soda corp was purchased by Play Corp, uh, they sponsored Toy Town uh, here at the park. And if you were to separate my attraction, it would have been in three ways, uh, which I think is where things started for you. There was uh, the loading area and the beginning of the ride. And it was funny because the beginning of the ride welcomed children and their guests uh, to the world of toys and a trip to Toy Town. Next stop, Toy Town. Uh, and there's even the Toy Town Express running alongside the boats uh, that the passengers would board in. Big, slow-moving boats. Uh, but the message was that, that the children could visit any time. They told you that at the beginning and the end. Any time you wanted to come to the world of toys, you just needed to close your eyes and pick up your toy and start to play. Uh, but when you first arrived uh, to my section, that wasn't what, you know, it had to children, uh, children boarding, boarding the Toy Town Express, uh, uh, then it moved on to the idea that children just closing their eyes and boarding the, you know, and that you could use your imagination to get to Toy Town. And the children, you know, they had started to sing at the beginning of my attraction and warming up to the song about the world, the toy, world of toys, joy and toys for the world or whatever the song was. I don't remember it. Like I said, uh, but and the outside, that was all outside, and then it went through doors, uh, but those doors had been sealed long ago. So when you first got to the loading area, you didn't see any children, or really any toys, uh, because uh, the, the children were, uh, you just saw these rusted uh, former uh, exos, I guess, of uh, uh, the metal superstructures uh, from the Tronics, uh, which were also rusted. So they made strange, uh, they look like otherworldly beings almost, uh, or a bit like the steam steam workers uh, from uh, Curly Sue. And most of the environment, uh, the rolling hills and the tunnel that lead it in, led into Toy Town, all that had kind of melted and turned gray and black, and uh, it looked desolate a bit. Uh, and I think you kind of thought that the beings were bringing the desolation, and uh, you didn't like it. Who would like it? It looked, uh, it wasn't an no way to enter an attraction with uh, rusted kind of stick figures uh, that didn't even move anymore. And you tried to get the doors open uh, so you could get into the main attraction. And you could kind of see through the little window. And it, you know, it looked like a utopia compared to the outside. Uh, but it was sealed pretty tight. Uh, yeah, because they closed this ride earlier than the rest because it was considered a piece of history. Uh, at the time, a working piece of history, a landmark, and it needed to be protected uh, for historical purposes. And again, there was debates, and I guess the outside of the ride was added on in like the 80s or the 70s. Uh, 
So they said it wasn't the same. It didn't have the historical preservation needs as the inside of the ride did. The inside of the ride was worked on by the founder, they would say in a breathless voice. And I, you know, I see attraction. If I had had a vote, I would have said, preserve all of me. Holy mackerel. But you tried to get in and you couldn't. So then you headed back and you went in through the back. Uh, and the end of the ride was also outside or partially covered the unloading area. And that was a moment when the ride, me, the attraction, and the children of the world, we were encouraging them to go out into the world of toys, bring Toy Town home, hint, hint, uh, guests, uh, bring a piece of Toy Town home, or if your guests are cheap, we didn't say this, uh, bring the spirit of Toy Town home. Spend some time in the world of toys every day because uh, you visited and now you've seen the power of play and the joy of toys. You know, and then we'd say to the guests, empower your children, empower their imagination. This was all the song. Your children were singing it. Uh, we also had light up signs. Uh, you say, who doesn't want to empower a child with play? Who doesn't want to evoke uh, the spirit of joy? I don't even know if that's really a saying. I've been contemplating that over the years. Uh, uh, and maybe your guests would want to experience the joy of toys, too. Thank you for visiting Toy Town. Uh, but this was not the close of the ride that you saw, not the ending you experienced. Uh, again, it was more rusty exos, uh, stick figures, I guess, uh, stick robots, uh, and they seem to all have their hands up. Uh, even in their deteriorated state, they seem to be celebrating something. Some sort of victory, it seemed. Uh, that They were victorious over the guests, uh, the parents, uh, and the grandparents. Uh, they say, hey, let's get some toys. Uh, let's spend some toys. You know, the exits end in a gift shop. Take some toys with you. And it was interesting how my boarding area was outside, but it went inside to a toy shop that was also uh, had historical elements. So that was preserved and locked up tight. And you looked in there, but it didn't quite capture your attention because you had looked in enough gift shops already in your time here at the park. Uh, so you looked it backwards again through another set of sealed doors uh, at the ride at the inside of my attraction, and then you were determined to get inside. The colors were so much brighter uh, than the worn, uh, deteriorated state on the outside. And you sit to it for a while. You uh, uh, tried finding other ways in, but they had really sealed up the exit so well. And uh, like some of the other attractions, uh, really, with solar energy, uh, solar power panels, uh, you know, created a venting and a dehumidification system. Uh, well, you would see when you got inside. And you worked on the doors uh, towards uh, to the entrance of the ride at first. And then it all hit you, uh, the canal and the few boats that were sitting in the bottom of the canal. And it had been a while you'd been at the park, so you uh, had restored some of the water. 
that was stored up on the hills in the uh, uh, the water that was gathered from the rain, kept up high. You know, that was to be used only in uh, situations when they needed it and to stable, increase water pressure for the guests. Uh, but after it had been rainy for a while, all of those uh, uh, were filled, and there was even a couple uh, reservoirs under inside the hills that you couldn't see. So you, uh, it, it was, you know, brownish water, like a bit of a creek, but you started to fill the canal, and you let the water pressure help you against the doors. And I said, how did she learn that? How did she know that the strength of the water, the weight of the water? And, of course, it worked with with you doing some, uh, what do you call like wedging and hammering and, and that uh, between the weight of the water because the doors were watertight, uh, uh, but they weren't water weight tight. They were to keep rain out. Uh, so eventually the doors broke and then you filled the canal and you didn't bother with the exit doors. You just uh, tied a rope to them so you could pull yourself through on a boat, uh, because the propulsion, you know, it was a little, you didn't, you said, why bother with that? Uh, one of these boats uh, were empty. It's pretty easy to move. And then there was only four boats in there. So to get to the end, you had to jump boat to boat. But what you saw inside, it was a bit dusty. It wasn't, you know, they said, they, because my attraction was already much older than a lot of the newer ones. Uh, it was still gloomy inside. And the solar power was only to light the, uh, not to light the attraction lights. It was two separate electrical systems. It was to light the work lights, which weren't exactly flattering for, uh, for all the parts of my attraction. My sound system was no longer operational and the motions weren't operating. I said, how are you preserving history? Now I'm just a collection of scenes, uh. But you looked through the cartoon versions of the children, only a few feet high and round heads, uh, children of the world, and the world of toys, and uh, how the ride started out with the historical, you know, imaginary historical history of toys uh, from ancient times. Uh, I don't think it was based on, I think that was another criticism they said, uh, Neanderthal children didn't play with sticks and rocks. Uh, and I said, let me see your proof. Uh, I mean, that's what I would have said if I could defend myself. Uh, and I said, well, maybe I have some resentment towards the founder. Uh, but am I a ride of a fiction or a ride of imagination? You're telling me that Neanderthal children didn't have an imagination. Uh, but I guess none of it mattered uh, because you were immersed at first. And then there was Woodville. Next stop, Woodville, a big room full of wooden toys, as if there was only one era of wooden toys. But there was a peak, I guess you'd call it peak wooden toys in Woodville. You know, wooden ducks on string and wooden boats and blocks uh, glued together, which you, uh, uh, you tried to break them apart, but the glue was stronger than the wood. 
And also it was a plastic composite, not wood. It looked like wood. And plenty of other wooden toys and uh, building things and and things to play with. Even a little wooden bowling set. Uh, again, glued, though. And since none of the motion worked, it was all kind of dull. You know, I think the duck was the only thing you got working because it would waddle its little feet. And, oh, there was a propeller you could spin on one of the wooden planes. And next was Tin Town, uh, full of tin toys. And I said it was at only one era. Was that before? But, I, you know, that's, uh, but you went in and it was a smaller room. I guess wood toys had a grander history than Tin Town. In to- within Toy Town was Tin Town. Yeah, uh, but you, you, you know, the, the tin toys. I think you avoided them for the most part because they did seem like. Uh, you said, "Well, you could get a scratch on here," and even though the rooms were sealed, uh, the t- they did use some real tin, and even though it had very glossy paint. Uh, some of the paint had deteriorated, and there was some rust on those tin toys. But they still looked fun, those tin toys. Then it was off to Doll Island, which was actually a collection in a giant room of uh, interconnected islands. Uh, I don't know why I'm criticizing myself to say Doll Archipelago, but I think I've read so many articles about me. But Doll Island was a place where doll, you know, dolls lived in Toy Town in the world of toys waiting for you to come. And there was usually children dancing and dolls dancing. Yeah, but because there was no motion, again, it just looked like, uh, what are these children doing just holding a doll? And, you know, you did have some, you know, Serena the Swan was some, who, someone you still carried with you. And we'll talk about your other play. So this did catch your curiosity. But this was the first room where you started to notice the eyes of the children and the eyes of the toys. Uh, and you looked at them questioning. And then you headed to pretend to place. Uh, it was supposed to be based on dress up and kitchens and, uh, you know, cool in it. You know, different pretending you were already working adults. Uh, so that was, I don't know if that was as easy to communicate uh, as it just looked like a bunch of small scenes uh, in a small city. Uh, but it was very, when when the lights were the right way, it was visually striking in the glitter. Again, you say, what cities have glitter everywhere? Well, uh, a play place does, a pretend place uh, and that segued right through a subway tunnel, you know, that was giant for the boats to go through, into Action City, uh, which had more action-based toys, or you could say more dolls that boys may have been played with, but anyone could play with them. And that was all about the action of comic books uh, and those kind of things and movies and TV shows and heroism uh, bought and sold, especially, and then of course, uh, you know, Play Corp did it to try to. They said, "Well, we have to show our, you know, that uh, like uh, the toys we make, uh, like uh, Army Ben and things. Uh, that's where some action is." 
And those were popular toys to play with. Uh, so there was children playing with all those toys. Uh, and you said you just looked at it like uh, more dolls uh, with more, you know, the thing was the, the, there was real toys in there and, and bigger toys. Uh, and the plastic held up well. So then you could see, well, these are more movable. These have uh, articulating elbows and knees and in some cases ankles and forearms and hands. So you found that interesting. Uh, then you headed into the forest, uh, to fu- furry, fuzzy friend forest, uh, where everywhere, li- and you saw Serena the Swan there, an adult version of her, not the uh, swaddling version you carried along at your side. And that one didn't fare, fare as well either. Now, these were supposed to be plush figures, but they were stuffed uh, and they had uh, ex, you know, internal uh, makeup uh, of metal, so they weren't as soft as the Serena the Swan you were used to. They were kind of hard, and they looked like they were soft and furry and fuzzy because uh, they were supposed to be evocative of those things. And the children played with them, uh, but because everything was static, it, w- it was again. You say, well, "Why are you standing next to a koala that is so cute?" And again, because these were larger-than-life uh, toys, again, you looked at their eyes, and in the eyes of the children, you saw a bit of a fervor about playing with toys. Uh, uh, they were overjoyed, uh, the joy of the toys. When, they, when there's no movement, uh, you could focus on the eyes more. And I don't know if it was... Well, I do know they overdilated the pupils, uh, to show that, that, you know, and I say this is, again, there was a paper written, written on this uh, that I read. How this was done intentionally to show how, to show fervor for toys. And possibly, this treaty said, uh, uh, to create a sympathetic vibration of the children. Uh, and I don't know if that was true, uh, but... Uh, you know, it did, and I said, well, is this going to affect the parents? And guests used to joke about it. They'd had this sense uh, in this room. And if you looked, uh, as this person did, with a high, they said, uh, at each part of the ride, the pupils become more and more dilated. And the eyebrows and the angle of the eyebrows and the forehead and the shape of the mouth uh, uh, becomes more and more... Uh, like the children are praising the toys in some way. So this was the first uh, taste of that. Uh, and uh, it didn't sit right with you. The ride, never, I never, you never felt comfortable inside of me. And I th- again, I think if you had at least been introduced properly, but the fact that it was these strange, rusty uh, things on the outside made you suspicious of what was happening. Like it something happened, like the world that like uh, you existed in, or that you were slowly becoming aware of outside of the park. Uh, uh, I think you drew too many uh, parallels. Uh, then there was a movie town and dance land and musical, Musicville, which were all in the same room. 
and just kind of showed children passively consuming those things and getting joy from it. Uh, the movies and music and dance. Uh, uh, I guess you don't passively enjoy dance, uh, but there was, a, you know, those dancing uh, fuzzy friends. And then there was the final parts of the ride where you were going to be cast uh, after movie land. They said, uh, haven't you ever wished you would be uh, the, the star of a movie, the hero or the heroine? Uh, and then it was the world of games. Now you truly can with technology. And the founder, even back at, like, uh, before there was video games, uh, the founder knew they were coming and you were digitized. Uh, now none of these lighting effects were working, but you went through a di- channel that digitized you and told you you were now part of the toys. You were in the world of toys, uh, a central character in the game. And then there was a brief history of video games, uh, and giant, giant pupils uh, of children playing the initial games and the, the systems and all the way into the interactive uh, past, a recent past or somewhat recent past. And uh, kids playing them, uh, but inside of them, but just strange juxtaposition for you because you didn't know, uh, you know, that... Uh, what is piloting a spaceship in a game was like, uh, or flying as a heroine with, uh, uh, superpowers was, was like, so again, you just found something off about those rooms and that was the height of the, the ride. Uh, uh, it was part of the, the no, that was right. That part of the ride, I think it, it, it was changed, you know, and added on. I don't remember now. Maybe it was playing with, it used to be playing with your family land or play outside land. I can't remember anymore. But it built the fervor in the joy of being a part of the toys. Uh, and you kind of said, well, all these rides use your imagination. And one thing is the colors really held up because this was a newer part. Uh, they were very bright. Uh, and if the black lights had worked, you would have seen it was even wilder. But again, it just seemed like uh, that uh, something it, uh, the children were under some hypnotic spell, I guess. I might as well say it. Uh, under the influence of propaganda. I think that was uh, Toy Town. Children, that was one of the uh, reports on my attraction at Toy Town. Children under the influence of propaganda. Uh, be careful what you wish for. I can't, you know, everyone had a, a fact-based opinion, about, or a science-based opinion about me. Uh, but you you seemed, as I watched you more, uh, to be fixated on uh, how, uh, not just that the children were enthralled with the toys, but that they weren't pr- productive uh, that they didn't seem to do, they were totally immersed in Toy Town instead of uh, having their day broken up into work and play and studying. Uh, there was no structure, and that they were oblivious uh, 
uh, to the beginning and the end of the ride, uh, that they seem to be under some spell, which I guess makes sense uh, when I look at it from your perspective, seeing the current condition, uh, which for some reason you believed was part of the design of the ride. Uh, it could have been more like a dream, uh, and that the children were just gleefully playing along. And I noticed you tried to sleep in the ride, and you couldn't get any sleep. Uh, eventually, you started covering the heads of all the children, especially the more dilated pupil ones. And then you got even more irritable, and you started uh, taking out the toys that you could, ripping them from the children's hands, which when they were part of them. But when you set to do something, you do it. So you slowly... Uh, remove you just threw everything in the canal, which I thought was very uh, interesting. As, as since I'm a histor- I said, well, I hope uh, uh, historical preservationists don't find out about this. Uh, they don't think that exists anymore. But uh, he ripped all the toys out. He threw them all: tin toys, wooden toys, digital toys. He uh, threw it all in the canal, even the ones you had to saw off. You got rid of, uh, and then you got into the toy shop and you got, you threw a lot of those toys from the toy shop into the canal and just around the park. Uh, but then you came back, uh, you weren't about to give up on, even though you covered the eyes of most of the children or almost all of them, you came back uh, to Doll Island and Action City and you started to play next to the children. You Because you are, had already created your own families with different dolls and characters and people caring for Serena Swan, uh, a global village around Serena Swan. You had your play where you acted out things. And I don't know if the ride reminded you that that was play, and maybe there was something there in your displeasure with those children having those things you did not have, uh, a global village around them, while poor Serena Swan, you know, in some of your places, she would uh, just swim by herself and you would talk to her and sing to her. Uh, but then you also showed the children, uh, because I didn't understand there was no building or art. I mean, I, mean, I, I guess... Uh, when I contemplated my own existence, I said, why aren't there children drawing? Or there was wooden blocks in a corner. Why aren't there children building uh, with tin or building with wood or building with plastics? Uh, but you brought those toys in. You drew next to the children and you would hum some of the songs you had heard in other parts of the park. You would play alongside... Uh, you would build things and show the other children. You would you, sometimes you would remove. Uh, you would see, but then you saw their eyes. You'd say, "No, that's too strange." Uh, perfectly round head and eyes too wide. But you would sing to the children. You even started reading to them. And then an idea struck you. You know, you had encountered all the cats, uh, uh, the feral cats, as they were once called, uh, now many generations past, uh, they lived in one section of the park. And you had played with the cats. Uh, they were aware of your existence, and you seemed to have established uh, 
a level of respect and you would play hide and seek with some of the cats that were more curious about you. And slowly you started to use uh, uh, food to get the cats uh, uh, to slowly move into my... Now, this is where I would take exception, uh, except the cats, even the cats in the park, uh, they do have some respect for their territory, not like dogs. Uh, So you lured the cats in... And you actually drained the canal because you knew the cats didn't like water. And you closed the doors most of the way so only you and the cats could get through. And slowly the cats moved in, a large portion of them, and they, they kind of liked it because uh, the structure was not drafty and it was very climate-controlled, as climate-controlled as, as could be in this time. You never, even though the environment was so hospitable, you didn't, you never, you never took to it because of the strangeness of the children and and the juxtaposition of the beginning and the end of the ride. But the cats moved in and you would go there and play with the cats. Uh, But what really got your attention in the end was the giant clock tower, uh, 14 stories that rose above the ride. And at first it didn't really seem to interest you, but then you climbed it one day all the way to the top uh, where there was room. Uh, no guests were ever allowed there, uh, but there was room up there for working on the clocks, and you could see out in all four directions all the way to the horizon, miles and miles away. And I realized this was probably the first time you'd seen outside of the park uh, and you would go up there for hours at a time. And you you had seen the sun set in some sense, but you had never seen it uh, set on a distant horizon. So you would watch the sunset, you would watch the sun rise, but you would look around, uh, staring out at the horizon, looking, looking for something. I think you were looking for that global village to be coming to you or another village or something. Uh, but the times you checked, uh, and then you realized after it's rained on you a few times that it wasn't exactly comfortable up there unless the weather was, you know, m- middle when it was war- too warm or too chill. So then in your brilliance, uh, you realized there was already cameras up there, but they weren't working. And you found a way and you strung together wire that you gathered from the park and ran it down to the to, to the solar power and you got those cam that took a long time i said i don't even know if she knows what she's doing but you seem to know i don't know if they were symbolic or if you really got the cam because you would still go out there every once in a while and just stare out at the horizon waiting waiting for something holding serena swan and looking down at the world, at Toy Town, at the world of toys, uh, you, you look down on me with disdain. Uh, but I guess I can understand it. Uh, but not like the guests. I guess there was a different disdain from the guests. I said, well, this is right. It's just a... Uh, but, uh, you know, the guests that uh, sat back and enjoyed it, uh, 
and let their pupils dilate and let the song infect them, let their foot tap along with the tune I no longer even remember that saw the bright colors and the constant motion that suspended their disbelief and said, well, this is just a world of toys here. It's not a propaganda to get me to buy toys or to even use my imagination other than now in the steady motion of the boats uh, and the song and the planes on strings uh, flying one way and the ducks on strings waddling another way, the windmills spinning, the kick of the children dancing, the clock faces turning, the, 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 the tower bells ringing. It all made for something the guests could really enjoy as they slowly moved along in their boat at a languid pace, uh, smiling and enthralled, enthralled in an immersive uh, attraction that was titillating them and so many. And then for the adults, uh, hearkening back to when they were a child. And maybe, just maybe, I guess because there wasn't a part of you that could experience this, that maybe there was a world of toys out there, a toy town with uh, uh, places you could visit. Uh, uh, maybe it was an imaginary, uh, that there was a possibility, and that drove some of the feeling in the ride, too. And the nice thing about it is you never really moved on from me. You'd come back and you'd check on the cats and and you'd go up in the clock tower and check the sunset or the sunrise and look for, I don't know, smoke on the horizon, motion on the horizon, people on the horizon. Uh, and I guess uh, there was no toys on your horizon and sometimes you'd, uh, you never, once the cats moved in, you didn't really sleep here, but, uh, uh, I, I would be full of purring some nights, uh, of sweet purring cats, uh, and I would uh, sleep to that, uh, good night. All right, welcome back to our ongoing, uh, serial, or episodically modular serial series, uh, uh, it's, uh, it follows a journey of a young woman, a girl, uh, growing up in a theme park. Uh, and uh, this uh, it follows her journeys as she learns and grows. And it's a very uh, sleepy and uh, dense series. You could listen to it during the day, uh, but... Uh, it's mostly made to help you drift off and to really immerse you on a couple of different levels. Uh, and in order to transition into the story, I'm going to read you a Wikipedia article about the Pepper's Illusion, which is a technique used in theaters, amusement parks, museums, televisions, and concerts. It's named after John Henry Pepper who lived 1821 to 1900, who popularized it in a demonstration in 1862. Uh, you may have seen it uh, in rides or at uh, carnivals uh, where uh, something appears and then can change it. One character 
like uh, your smiling buddy turns into your happy buddy or frown, you know, like a uh, Lionel Kitty City used to turn frown upside down. I don't know what they're going to do for Joffrey at Toys R Us if that frown will turn upside down. But uh, uh, it was also used when Tupac went on stage uh, at Coachella in 2012, uh, Michael Jackson in 2014. And how it works, uh, let's see, is uh, an audience is viewing a stage or a room with objects in it. And then suddenly uh, other objects will fade in and out of the room. Or one object will magically transform into a different object. And it basically involves a stage that's especially arranged into two rooms. Uh, one that people can see into, or the stage as a whole, in a hole. And the second is hidden to the side. It's called a blue room. And then a plate of glass or plexiglass is placed somewhere in the main room at an angle that uh, reflects the view of the blue room towards the audience. Uh, generally, this is arranged with the blue room to one side of the stage and the plate rotated around at 45 degrees. Uh, the glass really is, has to be clean and invisible. Uh, Normally, the lower edge has to be hidden in patterning on the floor and make sure that lights aren't reflecting off it. And when the lights are bright in the main room and dark in the blue room, the reflected image cannot be seen. Uh, but when the lights go on in the blue room, often with the main room lights dimming to make the effect more pronounced, the reflection becomes visible. And the objects from the blue room just uh, seem to appear. A common variation uses two blue rooms, one behind and one to the side, which can be switched uh, visible or invisible by alternating lighting. A hidden room might be an identical mirror image of the main room, so it's reflected uh, image matches the main room. Uh, this pro approach is, making, is useful in making things appear or disappear, or you can add a person or morph a person uh, or the hidden room might be painted black uh, with only light-colored objects uh, so that they can be su superimposed or appear to be floating. Uh, let's see, Giambattista della Porta was a 16th-century Neapolitan scientist and scholar uh, with uh, numerous innovations, including the camera obscura. In his uh, 1584 work, uh, Magica Naturalis, Natural Magic, includes a description of the illusion, uh, which is cool. Then John Pepper and Henry Dirks uh, at the Royal Polytechnic uh, Technical Institute in London uh, they, they was the first uh, permanent science-based institution in 1838. Uh, uh, Pepper joined their staff and uh, became a professor in Dirks. I uh, was famous for a bunch of uh, illusion-based performances in the theater, but they had to rebuild the theater, which was very expensive. Uh, then Pepper saw Dirk's illusion. They, they set one up at the Royal Polytechnic. Uh, and he realized, hey, we could modify this uh, to incorporate into existing theaters. So they did something with uh, Charles Dickens' uh, play. And this is the kind of thing you've seen at amusement parks. Uh, in, uh, different really famous amusement parks, uh, even in uh, Turbite Manor in uh, Nashville. 
attractions and, you know, seasonal attractions, we'll say. Uh, you know, mysteries that could be solved. Uh, even museums like the Abraham Lincoln uh, Presidential Library and the Museum of Wellington City and Sea. Uh, Hogwarts Express has it. Uh, London Science Museum. Uh, Wim- even uh, there's a John McEnroe shows up at the Wimbledon Tennis and Lawn Museum or Lawn and Tennis Museum. Uh, Sir Alex Ferguson at the Manchester United Museum. Uh, yeah, so that's just a, a few of them. There's even there's plenty more, uh, and uh, it's also used at, like to use it with teleprompters as inflammation. Um, on the show Magic School Bus, uh, and an audience with Les Dawson, in the movie Home Alone, and Sherlock, uh, on an episode of The Mentalist, uh, and in concerts, as we said, uh, with Tupac and other famous people. So, uh, that's a little bit about the uh, Pepper's Illusion effect, uh, and uh, as the, all of the lights uh, slowly dim, but there's still an undertone of warm light there, uh, softening the edges, but filling the room with the warmth uh, that sets you at ease as you drift uh, a little bit deeper with uh, rest. Uh, you start to see... Uh, the outside of a stone building, gray stones, but there's something, you can't quite put your finger on it, cartoony, about uh, the old gray stone building. Ah, uh, yes, when you came, uh, maybe maybe you did see my exterior first with the stones, it was the towers, the great stone tower, which was supposed to be the peeper or whatever that draws people to my attraction. And then it was supposed to look like the outside of a castle. But instead of goyles, those goyles that wa- were played as water spouts, we had corn and... Uh, uh, what are those uh, fruits, uh, horns of plenty, and uh, broccoli, uh, and statues, and carvings, uh, instead of uh, like uh, Corinthian columns, we had carrot columns and celery columns. And so the uh, exterior, which it did hold up a bit, uh, you know, it was to create a thing of like, oh, this is an old castle that loves its vegetables and some fruits. Uh, rutab- you know, there was also rutabagas, a roof, uh, whatever those things are called on the ramparts, uh, where you would stick your head up in between two things. It could be rutabagas or potatoes. You'd say, oh, this is an interesting old castle, but that tall tower. Uh, just to sit back with a grand, grand view. And it was in a, t- a tower which you could see somewhat far away, but when you were close, it was, it was, uh, it played tricks with you. It was very, very forced perspective. 
uh, narrowing and narrowing and narrowing, but it was also a tall tower, but you could never go to the top because it was such a forced perspective that when you were close, you could, it was very well done. Not perfectly, obviously, because they had to say, well, if you're this far away in the park, we can't have you seeing a stone tower because now you're in the place of future. But yes, it was the symbols of healthy eating. And then you, there was also on the ground level to show uh, the meats. You know, there wasn't a lot of dairy, we, 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 which you would, I don't know, when you came, you clearly, uh, as we spent time with one another, you know, we don't communicate, but you communicated with me because I said, what do I don't recall if you were to ask me in the times you were wandering through me, looking upon me, I couldn't have recalled. I'd say, well, I don't recall what that scene was about. Uh, I could feel my outside, and I guess I was in a very, very long slumber. I don't know about the other attractions, if they had been watching the whole time. But I think I fell into a deep slumber, and I could feel my outside. You know, it's, it's when you have a column, that's a carrot. You know it's a column of a carrot, but a lot of other things had faded. And because the audio soundtrack, even hearing the audio and the guests going through the attraction in the carts, uh, the horse, you know, a cart driven by goats or horses or ponies or mules, uh, I didn't remember very much. I said, okay, I see these carts that are in here, parked around, not moving. But yes, you came and started to walk around. But you arrived and you kind of woke me up and I, I said, oh, there's things that do stick out to me. Uh, beauty in the darkness. Uh, it was one thing that rang through. Uh, I don't ever, I, I just had that there, like at the back of my mind. Uh, uh, things about looking into places that you can't see everything. And that it was a bit of a twist and a departure. And that uh, I had a sense that uh, the guests weren't always pleased with me. And I said, what did I, did I, was I, but I knew I was, I could feel that I was somewhat ancient because I had iron in me in, in, in a much more solid construction than some of the newer attractions. I could sense, I said, oh, this is old iron. I'm not iron. My sides weren't iron, though. That's uh, funny that you say that. My, I guess that's me talking to me. But I said, have, how have I forgotten myself? Uh, and then you came and started walking through bit by bit, uh, following along my track, which was not hidden at all, in just a simple metal strip, uh, upright, a T with the floor, perpendicular to the floor. And that provided the power and the guidance, I guess, for the carts. Uh, that made the horses pretend to move their legs and occasionally move their head. You pushed, you had to push them. And, but you came in and I said, hmm, who is this? Uh, at first I, I said, where, where have I been? What have I, uh, where, where, okay, I, I can feel my body. Okay, so, uh, 
And then I could feel where I was, and I could feel my own iron bones. And I could feel the corn. And I said, okay, this outside feels familiar here. And this person, this guest, but she's not a guest. And why is she just walking around willy-nilly? You know, she's not a cast. Uh, a member, what is a cast? A member of cast. Uh, and then you started poking and prodding and look at me with interest. But with an interest, uh, I don't know, that was so soft and, and so curious, uh, I wish I could have told you if I could have unlocked my secrets uh, to you. Uh, but I was excited to be discovered nonetheless. I was excited to have you here very quickly and that you felt comfortable enough uh, to stay with me. And, you know, I don't have a lot of interactions or grape. I was in a, you know, like I said, I was in a deep, deep, deep sleep. And you seem determined to, uh, I don't know if you were on a quest to help me remember who I was. Uh, but when you came, you walked through and stayed with me and pondered and pondered. I think wondering why you couldn't immediately figure out uh, the uh, the meaning, you know, the meaning of my attraction or the, the uh, oh, where was I? It, it happened to me again, but... Oh, yes, you got, you started gathering supplies, and I think you had been with enough attractions that you said, okay, this is the loading and unloading area. This is where, uh, I'm going to get a big grasp on what, what, what is she, what she's about, if, if she is me. And you started bringing paints in, because I had once had a mural, uh, and because, uh, uh, because of my construction, it was uh, leading into my ride. It looked like you were going into a side door of a castle, up a garden path. Uh, and it was a thick door that they actually closed at night. So when they closed the park, uh, the door was closed. Uh, but even so, the humidity and the elements, I guess, got in. And the mural, had uh, it had faded and, I guess, peeled away. But what was interesting was whoever had sketched out the mural or planned it had used some sort of permanent uh, black ink or paint. So while there was no color, and while the outline it was there was an outline to a story, it wasn't a perfect outline. And so you started with black paint and a paintbrush, and you started completing the rest of the outline. I think you concluded, as did I, that, uh, oh, the loading and the unloading, because this was a simple attraction, not like these fancy attractions with the queues and the interactive. Uh, you just went through a winding queue, and you got on a cart, uh, uh, two to three people, two adults and one child, or one adult and one child per cart, a child in the middle or on the right side, please. On the inside, right side, left side, right side. Yeah, but you could see that there was two sets of murals, uh, but they were mirroring each other in some way, story-wise. And you started to paint the loading mural first, uh, which told a tale. And yours was, your painting technique was, uh, hmm, 
I did remember, I said, okay, this is not like those paid painters that would come during my refurbishments, and uh, your work was not exacting, and you didn't use a drop cloth. I remember they used a drop cloth and blue tape and supervisors and uh, reference paintings and discussions about color. Yours was much more of your impressions of how it should go. Uh, but your impressions were good uh, that it was uh, this king and this queen uh, had discovered uh, this, 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 uh, this thing going through the kingdom that was giving everyone tummy aches and uh, bags under their eyes and lethargy. These are words I heard you practicing, actually. I learned them from you. I remembered them from you. And that then they discovered that it was this candy uh, that too, too many people, the, the, the kingdom had been penetrated too deeply by candy. What once was just a passing fad, the king had thought. Uh, and then the mural showed that even the king fell into the spell of the candy, increased candy consumption. And then the king, uh, in many people, the candy had a high, took a high toll on the kingdom. And the queen, she was very unhappy, and she banished candy from a kingdom forever. Yet another tale as old as time. But the queen was uh, quick with a dog, quick with quick with child, I think they say. And right after, not long after, she triumphed and. Uh, with military might uh, over candy, raised the fields of cane, sugar cane. And, uh, you know, the candy loyalists were thrown out of the kingdom forever, a band uh, that she raised her child up in a world where children could be healthy and eat, uh, eat well, a queen that cared about the ch ch children's health. And the, then... Uh, I don't know at what point uh, you, you, you decided, okay, well, this other one also shows a queen. And, and uh, so you said, well, let me hold off on the, uh, on the uh, exit mural. But we'd seen on her throne that it was Queen Goji and you were Princess Zenaida. And uh, she loved you so. And then we entered the ride and showed the queen, you know, and all these healthy children playing. And you grow, Princess, not you, you, but uh, you, Princess Anida, uh, growing. Uh, but then the, the queen being very protective of her daughter and having her live in the tower where you would gaze out at the people. And the next, that was when you actually went into the ride, the ride went around, uh, like a, the view of your room, and then went through your window where you were looking out another window, and one of your nursemaids was there, a girl not that different in age than you, but she was working, and you called to her. Now, this part you had to do a lot of work on because it didn't have tronics, uh, but, you know, character figures uh, that you needed to kind of replace parts and come up with hair for, and repaint, uh, but this was a room, it was a room inside a girl's bedroom. It was another girl's bedroom, uh, which you made yours, which I found funny. And you tried to, to, to design the room. You, you, I guess you had a book, uh, 
that you would sit there reading about a medieval, you know, I don't know where you get these books, uh, somewhere else in the park, presumably. But uh, where you would see, well, this is what uh, the kingdom castle looks like, a historical. So you put a chamber pot in there. Thank you for not using that chamber pot. Uh, And you got the girl and you showed it. And then there was an illusion that was supposed to show her looking out a window. And then a boy was supposed to appear down there. I did not know any of this. Uh, and it took you a long time to figure out these techniques of how they would use the mirrors and the glass and the lighting. Your patience. Uh, but that uh, she was watching her window and then a boy would appear in the square. And uh, we would be in the square. We would go out of that room into the square and be looking up uh after she had looked out the window and seen the boy appear, and once we were close up with the boy, we would see the boy eating candy, and we would hear the princess. Uh, so then you had to figure out, uh, what is the story here? There's a boy outside eating candy. She's watching him. And then we went, after the town square, we went back into your room. Uh, well, actually, it was a kitchen. No, it was a kitchen of the castle where the maid was there again. And you were asking her about the candy. I guess I'm, I'm equating you and the princess. I guess I'm sorry for that. But, uh, you know, you were my princess restoring my memories. Or maybe this was never the tale. I don't know. But it makes it makes me. So you painted all of those scenes. And I guess you'd learned about black light. So, you you know, the town square was like uh it was just lit with so the cobblestones that looked like they had moon and water on them. And so the candied wrapper of the boy was eating some sort of a chuckle bar. The wrapper was very bright for you to catch it from all the way up in your tower. And you worked on the thing. And you started recording your own audio, which I thought was interesting. And I said, how does she know all these things? She comes to me. Uh, who is this young woman, old enough for herself to be a princess or a ma- maid or a, a nursemaid or whatever you call these things? Uh, but the next one was in the kitchen, and it was the princess uh, talking to a maid, saying, what was that boy eating out there outside my window? And you had said, well, this was candy. He's eating some candy. And she she said, it's my brother, so please don't tell on him. Uh, And you said, oh, that's that's your brother, eh? Interesting out there, eating candy. Uh, But then the princess in the next scene, which we just followed, it just followed from the kitchen uh, to the throne room. And this was our first real scene with the queen. And she was there ruling and looking glowingly, which took you a lot of work to add in jewels and make things glow. And maybe you put too much makeup on. I don't know if queens wear as much makeup as you painted on the queen, but she looked more like a jester. Yeah, but then the princess was there saying, Mama, what is candy? Uh, and the mother saying, what do you speak of candy? That you took your father, the king, away from us uh, and so many of our people. It is banned. Where did you hear of this candy? And then you didn't want to tell your maid's brother, because he had given he, he had given her a look, you know, and you seemed to have captured that. Uh, 
in his eyes with the white against the black light really popping along with the day-glow colors of the candy bar wrapper. Uh, but back to the scene, you know, the mother scene with her saying, never have candy and really berating you. Yeah, or the princess, princesses, and Ida. And then the princess in her room, uh, yet again, uh, looking out the window, but really staring at the moon and uh, uh, looking for the boy. We're pretending to look at the moon, but looking for the boy and uh, drawn in to this uh, thing between her mother and the candy and curious. Uh, and then this one was a projection illusion of uh, t- just turning the corner. And as you turn the corner, you could see uh, her head looking out of another forced perspective tower at a projection against the room of the boy uh, waving up to the tower and then following. Uh, and then th- then we would go, we followed right into the scene of uh, the boy was uh, following behind a cart that was dropping candy. And then we see the reveal that the princess is following the boy. And this scene was uh, quite a construction for you because it had different... Uh, what is called conveyor belts, one for the candy moving at one speed uh, to make everything look like you give it motion and the cart was moving away. And then to make the princess and the boy moving at different speeds and then the boy reaching down to pick up the candy uh, that was falling out of the back of an open sack on this wagon. Uh and then the boy having his own sack of candy and then turning again because then a dog on the back of the cart realizing it and barking. I couldn't believe it. You, and you do a great bark uh, recording and, and re-putting re, this into the attraction. You say, you're giving me voice again. And then the, the meeting over the candy running off uh, away. Now, some of this... Uh, you know, we would have to fill in for ourselves if, as the guests, I guess. I, I put myself as a guest of yours in some sense. Uh, but of them sharing the first candy together and him saying, well, my name is uh, is Hari. Uh, you know, you met my sister, Bo. And you saying, well, I'm a prisoner, Zenaida. And, and then them sharing the candy by fireside. And then... Uh, the princess eating two, you know, eating, you know, for her, a few candy bars. Uh, and I don't know if it's ever filled in, you know, that this was some sort of black market candy tear or something. I don't even recall. Uh, but it, that, uh, then you had some candy and your tummy started to rumble, but you fell deep asleep. And that's when uh, the attraction went through a misty wall and doors that looked misty and opened into your dream. And this was a part of the ride, was just like big wood paintings that would move back and forth, uh, and walls and spinning things, which took a lot of painting for you and light adjusting. A lot of bright colors against uh, black walls of uh, strange uh, walking candies and sad crying celery and broccoli for you, sad for you for eating candy. 
and of like you know candies uh, like uh, chattering and you know, spinning and you swimming in chocolate and then kissing Hari and uh, for giant uh, those with gummy bears. I don't think you knew what it, maybe you didn't know what a gummy bear was because I had heard uh, from another attraction not that long ago that you yourself had gotten into some of the candy at one of the shops, uh, one of the warehouses uh, where it was preserved, and that you did even worse than the princess, eating and eating and eating the candy until you were very, you know, not feeling good. And maybe you had the same type of candy-driven dream uh, that was both good and uh, strange, we'll say. And there was no pink elephants in this dream, but that would be what they would equate it with, is a pink elephant-filled dream. This was just strange. You say, well, hello, I'm Mr. McChip. Uh, that one, I don't know if the audio was already saved, or that you would have known someone was named Mr. McChip. But you had learned your, your lesson with the candy, and now you don't, uh... I guess you do, well, well, I guess this plays into everything. Why should I get ahead of things in the attraction? Getting ahead of myself within myself is, uh, I've never said before. But yes, so the dream was a, a bit wild, a bit, uh, fantastic, and... Uh, you didn't have the music, but you did find crazed music to blare and, uh, you know, tooting and effects of strange, you know, dreamlike characters. They'd say, what am I, in are you some sort of uh, licorice bird You're here to take me away to the sky, happy sky place? Uh, and then we were out of the dream. And the next scene. Now, you stayed a lot of time to contemplate all these things. And I think this is what the caretaker, I don't know, uh, I guess I'm projecting on the caretaker and you and the queen uh, and the princess. Uh, but uh, to say, uh, will you be like the princess and tempted so? And what would happen without a queen? Because in the next scene is when the queen, you, you are at the campsite. The princess is at the campsite. Here I am projecting, projecting, projecting. And the queen and her, her, her soldiers, uh, her knights uh, find you at the campsite alone. No hurry there. But you curled up warm with blankets, uh, and her face too streaked, missing her daughter. Is finding you wrapped, uh, surrounded by empty candy wrappers, and her not happy at all, uh, and her wanting to know what happened, and you saying nothing about a horror or bow, but just talking about following the uh, black market candy tear, and your mother being so furious, 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 uh, and putting you, saying you will stay in the tower where there's united way, you way away from the candy. And I don't know if you should even have a view outside. And so she covered your windows, uh, and you sat in your room there. The princess sat in her room, and you redid this. This was uh, a couple small scenes, uh, but then there was a scene of her in her room. Again, we returned to her room. And uh, 
This one had rotating things, so you slowly went around the room, and the room turned. It looked like it was the same room, but a lot of times you were crossing into a new room that looked similar. But it had you sulking, and then you getting into bed and finding a candy heart below your pillow, and then the candy hearts slowly appearing that had writing on them, Miss You, Love You. And then they did a thing with your headboard, which was just a circle wheel of candy hearts, uh, kind of showing that slowly the message was saying, trust my sister, eat this candy, think of me, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then the sister coming and saying, oh, are you getting, thank you for protecting me in a hurry. You know, our family is a part of the candy kingdom. Um, and... uh we, we, he wants to see you, and your mother's so upset with candy. We think we have an idea for you to get out of trouble and be able to look outside again. Your mother's headed off to meet with the King of Gourds, who's a, a hardliner against candy. And we think she's going there to, you know, to end candy forever. To, you, know, you work with the King of Gourds, uh, so we thought you could bring your mother, give your mother this present. We have it wrapped and ready to go. She's leaving tomorrow. And when she's gone, she'll miss you and she'll open this gift and she'll think of you. And at the same time, uh, uh, well, we have a plan, but just give your mother this gift. And the princess was, she, she was a little nervous about this because she didn't know what was, it, what was in the gift. Don't worry, your mother will love it. And she'll forgive you to make everything better. And then the next scene of her giving her mother the gift and the mother kissing her. And uh, uh, then the next scene after that is her door being opened by a royal messenger saying your mother was uh, captured, uh, placed under, you know, busted by the king of gourds for candy possession in his kingdom. It is outlawed no matter who you are. And... uh, uh, then you realizing you had set your mother up to be busted by the king of gods, uh, and you sitting out looking for Hari and Bo, and the people in the kingdom saying, "But you're in charge. You're the queen." You saying, "You saying, don't worry. I'll get to the bottom of this." Uh, uh, where is my maid named uh, Bo? And then you easily find, a little too easy, I don't think the princess realized that it was too easy to find Hari and Bo getting ready to leave. Uh, and that, uh, that you got in the, that, uh, you fell asleep, let's say, in the back of a wagon as they ran off, uh, with you. And then the princess reawakens in yet another scene in the Candy Kingdom, which, oh boy, did not look, uh, appetizing everyone did look down yeah but hari and Bo. it was quickly realized that hari was not Bo's uh brother but Bo's son and that Bo was uh some sort of uh uh magic user that she was not the official queen of the candy people but the ostensible leader and that she was going to keep you and, you know, use you as a tool, like, uh, negotiating. And that also they were moving. They were going to, you know, draw in the gourds troops while they went into your mother, you know, they went into your kingdom. 
And you faking it, Princess Zenaida saying, oh, no, you've tricked me so, but really inside you are quite upset. Uh, but the whole time Hari was watching you, and you sensed that, uh, that this was more than just uh, a sweet, sweet temptation of candy, and that uh, you weren't the only one. And uh, so you sat and you said, well, you know, I, I, I like, uh, you pretended to eat candy. And then you asked to see the queen and or whatever they, she called herself. I think she did sell herself the candy queen, but it wasn't, she wasn't actually a queen. Uh, but she was their leader. And you said, well, could I talk to you and Hari? Uh, I have another idea, you said. You see, you've, uh, I love uh, candy, and I love uh, Hari, I think. Uh, and to be honest, I've looked at your troops, and not even you don't even stand a chance against my mother's reserve troops, which would be there at the castle waiting. Even with me, you know, my mother really isn't a negotiator anyway, so she won't be swayed. But uh, if Hari and I were married, if I was in love with Hari, which I am, now you, that was a winkety-wink-wink, wink, uh, that uh, that I could be, he would be then uh, the rightful heir, right? Uh, and I'm sure mother would be, I could work things out with my mother, or that uh, it would change things. She, she would be driven to a choice. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't remember this spot because uh, I don't know, I'm always forgetting it, but you also leaked it out. Uh, you know, the soldiers that were listening in the, you know, the Queen's Guard or whatever. They had heard they stood no chance uh, because they had, had too much candy. They had more candy, less training. And it was, uh, you know, not from sugarcane. It was some other, you know, other candy creation, some other sugar source. And so the queen actually said, hmm, well, I think this is an idea. Let's uh, plan the wedding. And uh, soon they had a wedding. Where that was another scene. Uh, these, these again were have it. I said maybe there wasn't this many scenes in my original attraction. Uh, but he said okay, okay. And meanwhile, you, like uh, you, you married Hari, that was shown, and and then it was just Princess Zenaida went right into action, and uh, yeah, said, you know who's queen now. Uh, uh, I am, because, uh, Ari's not a king, and you're not a queen, a candy queen, self-proclaimed, uh, you know, this is within the provenance of my mother's kingdom, and, uh, I'm taking command of the candy kingdom in order to save it, uh, and it will only be a matter of time between, you know, my mother and the god king work things out, and they come here. And you're hemmed in by the good king on one side and my mother on the other side. And, you know, the forest of lost dreams is the only other place to go. And we know there's no candy there. So those of you in this kingdom, you could place uh, a hurry and bow under arrest uh, on my behalf. Or, you know, you could see how things work out with them. Uh, and, you know, if, you know, whatever state I'm in. You know, my mother's ire. I'm sure you've heard about my mother's ire, haven't you? And the soldiers of the Candy Kingdom did not even delay. And they placed Harry and Bo under the, you know, under the watch. And uh, 
you know, they went and visited very quickly, uh, the princess and Ida. Now, the, this is where they said, well, I, I mean, I don't know. Did this really happen in my original attraction? Uh, but that Hari and Bo, you know, they went to the big farm, uh, the big candy kingdom in the sky. And that you sent word uh, uh, to the, the your kingdom uh, back uh, and then you sent word uh, that you were gathering both uh, forces, uh, your mother's forces and the candy forces, and uniting them and kind of dividing them together uh, and also offering a small bit of candy to every soldier uh, within your mother's kingdom. Uh, but uh, like uh, saying, well, now we're taking uh, this king, this Gord King's got some nerve. Uh, and then you marched on the Gord King's kingdom. And you surrounded it, uh, and, you know, there was just uh, the, the cliffs, cliffs of uh, many tears on one side, and then, you know, the force of lost dreams. Uh, so the Gord King was quick to give up the Gord King's uh, uh, crown, and, you know, Gord King actually visited that tear, you know, and your mother was freed. And you said, Mother, this is only one condition here. You know, we'll unite all the kingdoms in our land now, our lost brothers and sisters who overindulged in candy, and our people who prospered under your rule, Mother, but who secretly longed for candy. And the candy gourds, we don't even know what we're dealing with. You know, hardliner, even hardliner than you, Mother. And uh, I have an idea of uh, returning candy to our kingdom. You know, one day a month uh, we'll have candy day uh, where you could consume candy. Now you shouldn't consume all you want, you know, uh, but you can if you wish. Uh, and on that day, you know, the candy stores will be open and uh, people can consume candy. And, you know, the rest of the month, no candy, just like you like, Mother, no candy any other day, and we'll prosper. And that led, this was the final part of the tale told in the uh, last mural, was everyone happily, you know, celebrating and eating candy in moderation, uh, which I think was something that once you, once Princess uh, Zenaida ruled. She said, well, let's just have moderate candy consumption, period. Which, uh, hint, 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 was because the bride was, uh, I did remember this because it was, that was like in the placard outside in permanent brass, uh, you know, was sponsored by one of the mega, you know, one of the candy kingdom, kingdom ears. Uh, but I think your hardest job in restoring my memory was in those illusions, uh, where you had to find the way to adjust the lighting and the paint so that one side of the room, when lit, would create these illusions. You know, the illusion of the candy being dropped. Uh, the boy outside the window eating the candy. Or some of the strange things in your candy dreams uh, that you really worked hard on. But I wondered as you went through this and, and I said, maybe she added some things in here. Was this really what I was about? Uh, a journey through candy and the consequences of uh, an all or nothing outlook on candy. Was that who I was?
was I something else? I don't now. I know that this, and, and I'm more now of an impressionist version of that. Uh, I don't know if the founder would recognize. I think you really did capture the essence of the story, though. As uh, as different as your art is, you were very good in the dream section, and your I, I, some may say your overuse of black light effects and of the Pepper's illusion. But you seemed hooked in the auditor. You loved, uh, you like sound effects too, I noticed. Uh, like uh, the mules uh, passing gas every once in a while. I said, how did she do that? Uh, quite a bit here, but I wondered if you were, you were there for the deeper message of the ride, of these temptations and costs and the natural, and the ire of the parents to say, no, 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 no. But yet something else drawing you drawing your attention naturally uh, uh, to the to the candies they say hey look at this dark chocolate here oh come to our kingdom we have such a, a sweet sugar treats to draw you in if you if you noticed that uh that uh that maybe i think i think the uh the caretakers are worried about the same for you of uh, curiosity getting the cat. Uh, but you got the cat, I think, one time, so I don't know. But thank you for helping me remember. Uh, I've appreciated the time we've spent together and you resting here with me and repainting me with each little brush stroke, uh, brushing and painting and dipping color by color. Uh, inch by inch, patch by patch, uh, restoring me. Uh, good night. All right, hey, everybody, welcome to our ongoing uh, episodic uh, modular, but it has a serial kind of uh, series. Extremely dreamy. And uh, it's uh, a very it's very dense uh, so that you can fall deep asleep. It's about a young girl a young woman uh, growing up in a theme park. And uh, in order to transition, I want to go on Wikipedia here and read you uh, the Wikipedia article about the film The African Queen, a 1951 British-American adventure film adapted from the 1935 novel of the same name by C.S. Forrester, the film was directed by John Houston and produced by Sam Spiegel and John Wolfe. It stars Humphrey Bogart, who won Academy Award for Best Oscar, or Best Actor, his only Oscar, and Catherine Hepburn. It currently holds a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, a fresh rating. It was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in 1994. And I am going to run through the plot here as we drift away. It starts with uh, Samuel Sayer and his sister Rose, uh, who are missionaries uh, in German East Africa at the beginning of WW1 in 1914. Uh, Their mail and supplies are delivered by a small steam launch named the African Queen, helmed by rough-and-ready Canadian Captain Charlie Allnutt whose coarse behavior they tolerate in a stiff manner. Charlie warns them, you know, trouble's on the horizon. 
but the Sayers stay on. And uh, then, you know, the WW-type stuff gets started. And uh, other, uh, you know, like uh, stuff that impacts Rose. And she gets, her and Charlie get set off in the African Queen. Uh, Charlie says, hey, uh, there's, so, there's a, you know, there's stuff in the river, other people, other boats, uh, including the Queen Louise, uh, you know, running around. And Rose comes up with a kind of a vision to, to deal with that. Uh, Charlie says, that's going to be really tough. Uh, there's rapids, there's forts, uh, but Rose is insistent. And during their journey, they encounter many obstacles, just like a good movie. And, you know, it gets, once it starts off easy, then it gets tougher. Uh, they have to improvise. Then they go through a second thing. Uh, it gets a little tougher, but they make it. And eventually they embrace, just embrace. Uh, but then, you know, they, they say, hey, what about, uh, you know, life in a boat? Uh, just the two of us. And then there's more rapids. And they say, well, this is this time the, the boat might be toast. And they, uh, they try, they go to shore, they try to do some fixing, and they do. And then they, like, uh, improvise again. Rose improvises even a bellows. Uh, but then they lose the channel, and they're lost in a sprawling delta. And they're stuck in the muck. And no supplies and low, you know, they're, they're at, at the edge, as they say. And then the rains come, and it rises the river up, and they float away out of the muck and into the lake uh, where they uh, sneak around. And then Rose says, hey, let's see, let's see, let's like in that, you know, WW them back as, as they're in the, with these cylinders. And they, uh, there's more adva- serious adventuring. Uh, and then they think, wait a second, we kind of like each other. And they say, well, where'd Rose go? And then they say, well, you, you what about you, Charlie? Whose side are you on? And then Rose is back, and then Charlie's in trouble. And she says, hey, Charlie, what's up, buddy? Uh, uh, you remember that, like embracing the boats, but he wants to keep, you know, protect her. So he says, huh, hardy, rough, rough. Uh, but then Rose says, you know, I'm going to tell you everything. And then they say, well, why don't we get married then? Because, uh, let's do that. And then, then they say, well, why not? That's, we do this kind of thing all the time. Uh, but then they realize that, uh, the African queen had, uh, it tricked them, and the plan was really a, 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 like a double tricky poo. And now that they're married, they head off uh, in love. And I want you to head off uh, drifting like a boat on a river, uh, which is much like a bird drifting in the air on the thermals in the sky or floating in the water as we drift uh, deeper into another space. 
I guess my story about you is a bit different than the other attractions. Uh, for my uh, my borders uh, grew over the years because uh, my trees, well, the trees that are part of me, it's strange to be an outdoor attraction, almost entirely outdoors. Uh, because I, I guess I am different than a lot of the other attractions. Not that there's not others like me. But you see, the trees that were within me uh, are a part of me. Because I guess you, I, I, I guess I'm not sure of that. Uh, but I'm deeply connected to those trees. And over the years, those trees have gone under the earth and floated on the air and connected with other trees and grew other trees. And also the vines and the mosses you see hanging from a lot of the trees here in the park. Uh, those are part of me, and because of that, I can be in touch with them and I can observe through them. So I had already been watching you with amusement, I might say, and curiosity. Uh, maybe I'm a mirror because you seem to be full of uh, the second one. Uh, you, you would sometimes I would see amusement on you. But yes, I kind of grew across the park, though I never took on some big wig role that I speak for other attractions or that I speak for the park as a whole. And I'm not much of a gossip. That's what everybody thought to say. Well, tell me what's going on over at uh, Science Central. Is it a... And I said, well, it's not my thing. I'm just, uh, you know, it is actually when you're a vine or a tree, people don't bother you with questions. No one knew until now. So I, I, I guess uh, it doesn't matter now anyway. But I would watch you back at the World of Toys up in that tower, the tall, tall clock tower, and how even after you left that attraction, you would return to that tower and look out across the park, across the horizon, and how you had created a little workshop at its base with your binoculars and your tools and your market. You were keeping track of things. And at first I was like, she's just looking on the horizon for other people like her. But I also began to notice you looking around the park with more and more detail and starting to gather things. And I said, she's on a, you're looking for the caretaker, I believe. And I know you had a big pile of candy wrappers of that one bar they had in the park and named after the, I think it's synonymous with the squirrel character of the park, Nutso, with a Z. And that was the Nutso bar. And you had been gathering wrappers you found around the park, which were too fresh. Uh, and I said, she's on a case. She's looking to find out who's leaving these Nutso wrappers around. And you had boot prints you had dug out of the mud and took with you. I know you had read some, you know, you've been reading so many books uh, that some of those books of mysteries and investigations had inspired you. 
And I don't read. So I was like, is she consider herself a fancy Nancy now? But uh, one time I opened my mouth, someone had a laugh at that. I said, well, I don't know who, who's invest- who are the kid investigators. And they said G and DK are the most famous kid investigators. Well, you had laid out what was clearly another presence there. The boots, the candy, you know, muddy handprints on uh garden gardening things even a couple of shirts and things uh and i said is the caretaker getting sloppy had gotten sloppy or what so but you'd gathered them over time and some were older than the others but that's all you had and you kept watching from your clock tower trying to find uh who was leaving these candy wrappers and these blue, blue boot prints around. And I understand that you had kind of started to grow and grow in, in age and maturity and knowledge. And you were, you were no fool. You said, who else? Someone else is here providing part of this for me. Someone else is helping take care of this park. Why haven't I seen them? Why haven't they reached out to me? Uh, why haven't they contacted me at all? What is going on? And sometimes you would lose your frustration. Now, you'd never come to me, but that was mostly because I was very overgrown. And so you'd say, you wouldn't even know. You'd say, is that a retention basin? Or was that once, uh, uh, you know, your eye would skip over it. There was also the sinkhole that formed on a street in the, the land of adventure. Uh, so no one would go that way. It looked like that part of the park was, uh, you'd have to go all the way around. And even coming up the other side, uh, which had, I think something else was blocking the other side down there, but... Even coming up the other side, the sinkhole was still in the entire road and in front of the path, uh, the walkway, I guess they called it, when the park was open, is gone. Uh, so there really was no way to go in as a guest would. And you were smart, smart even as a young child, so as soon as you saw the sinkhole, you realized, oh, this is probably growing a little bit. Uh, no reason, plenty of other places to explore. And even getting the idea, oh, there's sinkholes in this area, but not in these other areas. Why should I be about in a sinkhole area unless I really need to? So you, you know, I have to give it to you very much. Uh, it wasn't a hospital. I'm not a hospitable place. Uh, full of uh, life, though. Not the life you, well, well, we'll talk about that right now. But then I caught your attention, or I didn't exactly catch your attention. But you had become more and more adept at scanning the park and noticing things as you had been in the case and been more and more frustrated with your lack of results. And you started to notice the activity of the birds uh, above me. And when the birds were, some birds lived in my trees, uh, and the fact was when someone would disturb them, they would all fly up. Uh, or when someone would drop something for the birds to eat, they would all gather and circle and make a big fuss. And I think for a long time you just said, well, that's what birds do every once in a while. They uh, 
fly out of the trees and they make a big to-do. Must be bird behavior. But something about it one day caught your attention and you started to just keep track of uh, what the weather was like, uh, what the time of day was that the birds were making it to-do. And uh, I don't know if you noticed a pattern, but it, you noticed something. And then there was one time you were just sitting up there thinking and looking, not really scanning, you know, at ease. And you have to be looking my way at the lush trees and just barely be able to see through the dense canopy, uh, little sparkles of water. But you weren't really studying me. It was like you were looking through me. I don't know what you were thinking about. You know, because I was seeing you from a tree just across the way that was almost as high as the clock tower. Yeah, but I, you know, I couldn't, just because I had access to the trees and the vines, didn't mean I could read your mind. Yeah, but then all of these birds just shot up, uh, and it was sudden, and, and they were circling, and, and they were squawking, saying, hey, hey, hey. And I think you even noticed some bushes or some trees moving. And so you uh, noted it, and then you rushed down in a hurry. But it took you quite a while to climb down the clock tower, gather your things that you like to bring with you. Of course, a, a light jacket always. And a probing walking stick. Uh, and then you headed over and you realized, oh, yes, there's sinkholes there. That, that's uh, the patch of green behind the sinkhole. But then you set to it. You set to exploring, and you probed the end of the sinkhole. But the end of the sinkhole uh, went all the way up against the side of some of the very well-constructed uh uh, small town USA, you know, the, for, for the main strip of shops. And so then you climbed eventually over onto the roofs of those that you'd been on before. And you climbed back down and headed through some of the backstage areas. And eventually you found your way through a fence. Uh, and you followed the side of the fence, uh, very, very thick foliage, uh, into another fence. Uh, and that was uh, slow going at first, but you stuck by the fence, uh, which was smart because you could barely see very far. And the tree was, uh, and this was just a fence separating the attraction from the backstage area so that the cast couldn't go messing around in my attraction. And I think maybe the founder's uh, grandchildren or something would just sneak back there occasionally. Well, you followed the fence all the way up into the edge of uh, of my attraction. And actually, what you didn't know is like uh, of the boundaries of the park, uh, and there was uh, you could see through one fence, and you could see on the other side of the fence it had been uh, landscaped. The fence was, this was not the fence, an internal park fence. This was an external, an internal park fence running into a fence to the outside. And you could see to your right, finally, that that was cleared. And to your left on the other side of the fence you were on, that it was clear that someone was maintaining this fence on either side uh, that uh, all of the brush and all of the vines were constantly being taken off.
And then you could see the big canal, the big retention basin separating the boundaries of the park, actually. The guests would never see it because it looked moat-like. And then on the other side of that, yet another fence that was not as well maintained, but was still maintained. And these were, you know, not fences for the guests to see, so they were uh, painted dark colors and not very inviting. And you followed the boundary fence to the right, and eventually, after not that long of walking, you know, there was a path, a clear path, uh, along the fence uh, where the forest, uh, the jungle, was kept at bay. And eventually he reached the two canals that led into my attraction. And your ears pricked right up and you could hear that uh, there was pumps uh, working. Uh, the pumps are bringing water in uh, and pumping water back out. And, and then you saw how uh, that the uh, there was a bridge bringing water in. Uh, from these large hills outside of the boundary, still part of the larger property. I don't know why I'm explaining this all back to you, but those hills were actually reservoirs of rainwater, and uh, that would bring fresh water back into my attraction when needed and pump the water out so, so that the water in my attraction, the river, I'm a river, by the way, is uh, always uh, slowly, slowly moving. And you could also see the solar panels that were running the pumps, and uh, that those were very clean. And this got your attention, because anytime something's kept up in this park here, in this way, it gets your attention, obviously. Your mind had become uh, very, very... Uh, you, you were maintaining your mind like this fence and this equipment was being maintained. And you looked down at the canals and you noticed uh, it was a, it was not just pumps, but it was a system of locks to let things in and that there was even fencing down there. And then you noticed in the, in the canal and the fencing was very tight uh, because there was fish in the canal. And that it was a very fine, almost netting to keep the fish, even the littler fish, from swimming out. Uh, and that the nice thing was the water was so slow moving that even the smaller fish uh, were not getting, it was no problem. And so you said, hmm, this is interesting. And then you followed the fence around the entire attraction, moving clockwise uh, around my boundary which was slow going, you know, because it was just a few feet between the fence and the thick, thick jungle. And eventually you found your way to the the, the loading and unloading area, to the docks uh, in some of the cast member areas. And the building that would do the loading and the unloading, which wasn't really in terrible shape. It hadn't been kept up, but it had been made from composites. And I think because of the use of, you know, the use that the guests couldn't see, the composites were on some concrete and there was some concrete that it wasn't exactly, it wasn't a lot of dirt for me to, for growth to take hold there. And there wasn't really any wood. It was all uh, concrete and composites and 
very well made. So you started going through the, and the interesting thing was, you know, this is preparing for a jungle adventure, a cruise down the jungle rivers. And so you started, it was already set up like a camp and there, there was still uh, some parts that weren't in terrible shape. So you ended up bringing your bedroll in uh, because there was still, uh, uh, I, I think this was in the cast area. You started finding things that they would use to update the attraction like mosquito nets, which made for perfect sleeping for you. And then you would sleep in the loading area that was designed to look like a camp anyway. And you would listen to the sounds, which were very intense by me, the bird sounds and the, the little the cricket sounds and the sounds of bubbling and frogs, fish jumping. It was a nice place to sleep, uh, especially with, you know, you had those nets, so you didn't have to worry about it. And the water, we had no stagnant water here, so it was a nice place uh, to rest. And then you just started digging more through the cast member areas. For there was like uh this was like a place that was very personalized. You had this my attraction. You had to apply again to be there because uh, each boat had a host on it that was there to tell their own jokes and things while they gave you this imaginary tour uh, deep, you know, deep into the heart of the rivers. Uh, as Conrad would say in different terms. Uh, so you went through, you started getting into their lockers, which took some efforts, and that's where you found in one locker a photo album, which you took back with you. And you also found uh, that one of the lockers had uh, uh, miscellaneous things for the gift shop, uh, and you found a book about my attraction, so you'd be able to, you got to look at what I looked like in my heyday. And you would stay there at night, and you had your little lamp. It was like you—it was like I'd become real in some sense. And you were an adventurer, just on the edge of my adventure, uh, waiting and reading. And you know, you didn't wait very long to do the adventuring, but at night, you know, you'd be resting and reading and looking at the pictures of me, and then looking through this photo album of a young woman. Uh, and pictures of her with her family, uh, visiting her. She was a, a boat captain, but also, you know, doing family things and her growing up uh, with her family. Uh, you know, just looking at all of her and her siblings and uh, her happiness and times she didn't look so happy. But during the day, you were exploring the forests and the jungles around me, within me, that were me. And you did start to find the paths of some well-worn paths, and you followed them. And some of them went to technical things, like the pumps that ran the waterfalls, all the waterfalls within my attraction uh, that were also powered by the sun and solar panels just put out of sight, but that they were regularly maintained uh, to aerate the water. And even from the top of the waterfalls, you could see down into the the water uh, that was a part of me as well. And that because the water was moving and aerating, uh, it seemed somewhat clean and clear depending on the day. So you could see that it was teeming with life, uh, with fish. 
and with uh, things that fish eat, which are little uh, insect friends and uh, some spots of floating algae or floating plants. I don't know. You know, I, I, I know them, uh, but only by their personality, which is, you know, they're kind of slow moving and chill. You could see things larger than fish that was swimming occasionally and saying hello to the fish. Would you get in my belly? Uh, you know, modern dinos, I'd say we could call them agree. Yeah, and you said, okay, I've got to keep an eye out for them. They don't look too friendly. And you started to explore more, and you noticed, yeah, that some of the paths as they headed towards the water had uh, wicker fences about three feet high on either side that you could easily step over. But you had determined, oh, that's to keep the dinos, uh, the uh, modern dinos, uh, because they're very low in squat. Uh, they probably can't get over these fences. They'll just bump into them. So you thought that was interesting. that, it, and, and you followed those paths that went down uh, to parts of the water. And you said, okay, this is where the fishing goes on. And you found equipment uh, for both fishing with lines and of going in uh, poles and things to get out uh, uh, baskets. So you say, oh, that's an easy way to get the fish in these baskets. And, you know, you said, okay, you even found a bigger, uh, bigger boom with the net. Uh, and that took you a while to figure out, but you realized that that was a place where those, like, uh, dino, uh, modern dinos, uh, gathered a little bit deeper of a pool uh, where there was fish uh, that would go down deeper and they would go visit the fish. And you said, you know, you tell this boom and pole and net was used. Uh, You said, oh, this is used for these dinos. Uh, uh, And you started to think about how uh, you probably had, they had been in your belly possibly. And even some of the birds, you realized uh, that you were in uh, a lush area. Uh, he said, "Oh, okay, this is uh, this," uh, and you kind of appreciated. He said, the, you, I, "I felt like that." That you said, "Oh, you are giving me life. You are providing me life," and but someone is maintaining this uh, so that it is able to do so. Someone is enabling it to be somewhat wild, but not totally gone wild. And then you would wait. Uh, you would read at night, but you would got your bed closer to the big open windows looking out at the attraction. And you would wait. You Sometimes you waited at the paths, and sometimes you waited up in the second floor of the queue, looking and listening and sometimes you would hear the birds stir and you would run down, but you never saw anyone. And eventually you found, started finding the occasional candy wrapper. And you started to get a bit, bit, bit frustrated, I think, a bit frustrated that you hadn't, uh, that you were close, uh, but you still hadn't seen another person, the, the, uh, the caretaker. And this whole time, you'd also been kind of influenced by the book you were reading, looking at my attraction, and you started to find the places where the the the, uh, the manufactured parts of my attraction 
But you started to remake them with pictures from the girls' photo album, kind of. Like, you took the giant butterfly section. And you did find the, the, the some of the uh, the wires that had made up the giant butterflies. But most of the plastics and other things had fallen off or deteriorated. But you made do with some clothing. And you made the butterflies look like they had wings. But then you took a log uh, about your size, uh, and you designed it like a young woman. And you had found a uniform, and you put the uniform on the log and a, a safari hat on the head. And you made an arm pointing at the butterflies, and you gave us some hair, like uh, the long blonde hair of the girl in the picture. And you put a smile on her face like she was talking a joke about the butterflies. Like, what do you call it uh, when breakfast, I don't know, when you make breakfast, the toast has wings, uh, butterflies, I don't know, I I don't have, I don't remember any of the jokes they used to tell, I guess. And then you, uh, you like, uh, made sure the falls were clear, because you knew there was a lot of jokes about the falls. There was a welcoming party of... Uh, you know, but these, these jokes, I don't think, I, I'm surprised they still so, stood up. They said, well, you're not really welcome in our, our forest or jungle. Keep your boat moving. Uh, so you kind of designed them in a simple way. And they were blowing spitballs uh, through spitball shooters. But again, you took another log and you designed the girl. Instead of being on the boats, because uh, all of my boats were gone. I don't know what had happened to them. I mean, I know there was a few sunk right at the boat repair area, but they weren't ever getting... But anyway, so you uh, it designed her and uh, making another joke about the welcoming party and the spitballs, and you even put a spitball on her face uh, in her frowning, one half-frown, half-smile. It really captured the girl from the pictures, even though you were working in... Logs and sticks and garbage and, and different things you could use and then uniforms. It was beautiful. And then there was a camp that had been taken over by forest friends and they'd kicked out the adventurers and they were using all the adventurers' things. And it took you a long time to get back up, which at that one you didn't even bother. You made it, uh, you took a picture from her camping trip with her family. And you put them all in the tent playing a game. Uh, four logs, uh, you know, a young woman, a boy, and then a mother and a father playing a board game in an open tent. And you really put a lot of work into that. And again, I was like stunned. And, and you were careful about all of the dinos and everything. Yeah, uh, but you know, you these were areas that weren't super accessible to them anyway. And then on the second falls, where they make a joke that I never even understood, you actually uh, uh, found a rock and you put a log on that, pointing to the falls, saying "back end water's butt" or something. This is the butt of a water joke. Don't be the butt of a joke about water. And you put her in a uniform pointing at it. Uh, 
And that one was almost like a hidden. I don't know if you would notice it. Uh, and you did have to climb up a waterfall and go back down, but you stayed out of the river, which I was glad about. And this way you had avoided the river water uh, because of those dinos. And then there was the temple. Uh, and again, you put one from her family, and that was actually a trip of them uh, visiting Thailand. And uh, you did a picture of them. And you made it like they were in Thailand on a family trip there in a temple, uh, taking time to show uh, reverence uh, for the statue within this temple. And all that was old, uh, you know, that was all crafted concrete or something. So that was all. And then, you know, you put the logs in there. And instead of the end of the ride with the different things, you just did another family scene of uh, of her giving. It was just beautiful in the photo album I saw, which we're looking at, uh, her getting a special token uh, from the visit for each of her family members uh, from the park. Uh, and uh, then one last one of her waving goodbye to all the guests uh, instead of the old... Uh, uh, tropey things I guess we had in the attraction that maybe were past the prime. And I guess I didn't quite get it, uh, until afterwards, uh, that you weren't uh, just doing this for yourself, uh, for, for, for just expression. Like, uh, when you express yourself internally, I guess you're expressing yourself externally. And so, uh, that's what you were doing. Uh, and, you were trying to get a message out there, maybe, or have someone relate to how you were feeling. Uh, but no one, I guess, uh, I didn't realize it. Uh, I don't I don't think there was anything I could have done other than appreciate it a little bit more. But you sat and waited, uh, uh, still hoping to find uh, whoever had been coming and servicing things and uh, getting fish and... Uh, they didn't come, and you wanted to see if they were going to come and look at your work, and then it rained, and you were even staying during the rain because you had saw that uh, the thing to catch the dino had been set up, uh, that they must have been out of belly dino. And so you slept in a tree overlooking that, and it rained for days, and you were miserably cold and wet and just sitting there trying to sleep in a tree or hugging it. Uh, and then eventually you woke up and you, you, that was when you, you, the, the weather broke and the sun came out. And you seemed uh, a bit perturbed. And you actually remembered, uh, and this was, uh, you know, long, no, no details needed, but that there was a canoe uh, that was a prop, uh, another attraction you had been in. And you had checked it, and you said, this is a real canoe. It's not glued or anything. And so you went all the way back to that attraction and brought the canoe back, and it was heavy and unwieldy. Well, you were very strong. Even with your strength, it took a, took a full, full long day, and you were exhausted. But you got that canoe in the water, and you had two paddles. And and then I said, oh, no, this is not a good idea. And not only that, you weren't just, you, you grabbed a long stick and the paddles, and 
you started pushing over the logs that you had taken so much time to design. They're pushing them in the water where their hair and their smiles fell off and their uniforms sunk to the bottom. And, you know, the ones that were on the shore just pushing them over with a stick uh, and then splashing the dino friends, uh, which they didn't take, you know, they were confused. They said, who is it? What is going on here? But they also gave you that look. Uh, and they said, what is she doing? She's just too foolish. And you were so stubborn that you decided to sleep one night in the canoe. Which I said, well, that's not a terrible idea, except for the fact, uh, uh, with your arms crossed and a full moon lying. And I said, well, you could lie there. And it, the canoe just slowly moved until it was up against the fence uh, where the water exited. So by the time you fell asleep, uh, you would just drift it against the fence uh, in a nice, uh, safe, restful place. And then you awoke again. Uh, and you paddled back, and then you seemed to really, uh, even that fire in you was just, it had been uh, stirred, stirred up, uh, and you saw that the thing for the dinos, it's still not, uh, they hadn't, uh, none of the dinos had swam, in, swam into it. Uh, we saw there was bells on there, and you got out, and I, at first I thought you were going to ruin it. Uh, um, I said, what is she, what is she doing? Uh, and at first uh, you were like uh, struggling with it. Uh, and then an idea must have clicked in your head. Uh, and you undid it uh, so that it wouldn't catch a dino. Uh, but you left it looking like it would. You got rid of uh, whatever they'd put in there, extra dino food. And then you ran off uh, and you searched and searched the park. Uh, and you searched the lockers of uh, other attractions even until you found a nutso bar. And then you ran back with, actually, I think you had a few stuffed in your pockets. And then I couldn't really see what you were doing, but you detached some of the bell, the, what are the bells? Is that what they're called? Uh, uh, that were on there to say, oh, we caught a dino. And you said something of your own. I said, what is she doing here? Is she trying to catch her own dino? But it, why would you try to... It didn't look like you were you were going to use a nutso bar to catch her own dino. Uh, but on land instead of water, and they're heavy. And I said, that's why the boom and the pole are there with the pulley. Uh, because uh, that makes it easy to uh, lift it out of the water and swing it over and... Uh, Send it to the big, big, big dino park in the sky, and eventually to your bellies. So then you set all that up, uh, and you headed off actually to your bed, and then you just stubbornly stayed in your room until one night you heard the jingle, jingling of the bells, uh, and you raced off, uh, and uh, as you got close and you heard the jingling, jingling, you said, okay. And before you went down that path, you paused because uh, you wondered, what, what is it in, uh, what have I, have I got myself a dino? Uh, at first I said, is she wondering if she got herself a dino and how she's going to deal with it? But now I realize it was a combination of something uh, that you had been waiting for. 
and that you were probably both incredibly excited and a little bit nervous uh, to meet someone for the first time. And what you had anticipated, I don't really know. Uh, so you paused and even heard some uh, sounds that you would make, like rum uh, uh, type sounds. And you said, okay, I don't think this is a dino up there. And then you slowly moved and you saw, and this was in the, it was a, only a half moon. So you could see that you, you had, I didn't realize you had made your own nets. And I thought it was nice you used to just do tons and tons of mosquito netting so that no one would get to get, you said, oh, that's a really good way for a person. And you could see here the crinkling of the nutso bar wrapper. And you saw someone in there, uh, and they were there. And then you were wondering what you were going to do, I guess. Uh, he said, uh-huh, uh, But you untied the, uh, he said, where did she learn to do this book? Uh, uh, but you settled the, uh, you eventually settled, you released it and settled the net down. And uh, the person in there would need some help, and you approached so slowly, uh, and you made some soothing sounds, uh, uh, but also some quivering sounds, not believing that you were going to meet the caretaker that had been... uh, I'm sure you had some mixed feelings before and after, but at this moment it was uh, kind of an awe-like feeling as you slowly approached... And the net was still tied at the top, uh, the way you had made it, uh, so they couldn't get it, get out without your help. Uh, and then I wondered if you wondered what who what, what does this caretaker look like? Uh, if you had an image in your mind, uh, uh, and you padded the package uh, and made this, it's okay type sound, and then. They stopped struggling, and you unknotted it, and you opened it up, uh, and looking up at you was not what you expected, not an old grizzled man. I guess that's what you expected, and that's what was on a lot of the rides. And I could tell then that you were very surprised, for this wasn't a man but a boy, a boy younger than you, tall uh, and lanky. But not as tall as you, holding in his hand a nutso bar and kind of staring at you. Uh, again, I guess because of the times and the circumstances, uh, wasn't more so much fear as, uh, uh, I don't know if there's a word here, even in my jungle ride, uh, about it, uh, uh, not curiosity, but he looked at you in a way, I guess maybe if there was a UFO to land, uh, you'd say, what is, uh... but at the same time with a knowing awareness of your presence uh, and that you weren't what he expected to see. And then for the first time, you spoke words to another person. The first time... I guess it was monumental for me to be there to another person.
You said hello, hi. And you reached out both palms. And then you reached out one palm like a handshaker that you had seen and learned about uh, your time in the park. And you smiled. And you pointed at the nutso bar. And you reached into your pocket and pulled out another one. Now, this boy was not a... Uh, his action was uh, slow and deliberate, too. Not feral and grabbing. And not hostile at all. Uh, more of a comfortable interest. And he nodded and then grunted a few times. Uh, and uh, held his up and then pointed his nutso bar at yours. Uh, and nodded again. And then instead of making a grunting sound, made a sound like, yeah. And he started to eat his nutso bar and indicated that you ate your nutso bar. And then you, the two of you, walked back to your place, to the loading and unloading area where you made your camp. You showed him your room, and uh, you made he still didn't communicate or speak back to you other than with sounds. Uh, so you made a symbol about sleeping, and you pointed to it, uh, and he nodded. And it was a bit confusing. You said you made him get in your bed and sleep there, and then you slept at the side of the bed. Uh was a secondary bedroll you had in for colder nights. Uh, and you both slept so soundly in each other's presence so deeply. As the half moon set uh, and the night grew darker and my sounds uh, grew more comforting. And both of you breathed. I think both of you stayed awake for a little while, wondering, wondering what all this meant, this connection. Who was this other person? But you knew uh, that this wasn't something to be overly concerned about, just to be interested in. You listened to the sounds of the night, uh, and they carried you into a deep, deep sleep. Good night. All right, so it's time for the final episode of uh, this. uh, uh, What is this? uh, what is it called? Modular episodic series uh, with serial elements. Uh, so I guess if you have a conclusion, uh, this is a serialized part because it's the last episode. Though I don't think it'd be a huge thing if you listen to this episode. Uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's all to put you to sleep super dense. Uh, like uh, this is like a like a, a like a unleavened cookie or something. I, are cookies leavened? Who knows? I think like it is a le- leavener. Like you can use dough or you can use like baking soda and baking powder, right? Anyone? I don't know. This is one of our more. Uh, this is a very dreamy series. I, I, I don't know. I'm gonna do a re- like a what do we call that retrospective or re- rehashing episode next week. So or next time. Uh, but yeah, this is a lovely story of a young woman who lives in a theme park and 
to transition you from here into the episode, I'm going to read the Wikipedia article about Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. And I'll be quoting and paraphrasing. Uh, it's an attraction in Magic Kingdom Park at Walt Disney World Resort, uh, created by Walt Disney and Wed Enterprises for the GE Pavilion for the 64 New York's World Fair. It was moved to, to Tomorrowland and Disneyland and remained there from 1967 until 73. It was replaced in Disneyland by America Sings in 74 and then reopened in Walt Disney World's Resorts Magic Kingdom in 75. So in 11 years, it's a bit, you know, carousels, this is a weird thing uh, that I didn't mean to interject here, but carousels go on a lot of journeys. If you go, if you ever visit carousels, most of the time it's not their first stop. Uh, so isn't that, is, that's pretty paradoxical and ironic if, if I ever heard anything. They carousels going, you know, their job is to not go anywhere but in a circle. But uh, this one hit a lot of places in just 11 short years. And it's uh, steeped now in nostalgia from, the, oh, it, it, you know, it was always steeped in nostalgia and futurism. And it was a premise was the exploration of the joys of living through the advent of electricity and technological advances for a typical, quotes uh, family in America. Uh, to keep up with the times, the attraction has been updated uh, five times in 67, 75, 81, 85, and 93. I would presume it was updated at least one more time. Uh, it's had two theme songs, one by the Sherman Brothers. Oh, both by the Sherman Brothers. Excuse me, both Sherman Brothers. Uh, uh, various sources that are not quoted here say it was Walt Disney's favorite attraction and that it should never close. And uh, maybe that's why it's still running, uh, uh, because, uh, I don't know, it has a great song, or at least whatever the current song is. And I know kids enjoy it. Let's see, it's, uh, I don't know, it's basically, I, I can't read through all this, uh, but it it has like a, Act 1 is in the 1900s, and it shows life for, for again, a, a nuclear family. And, the, and then the 20s is Act 2. This may have been updated. Then the 40s uh, and then the 21st century. Uh, and uh, then you go back to the beginning where there's just a little thing. And basically it's a carousel that you're sitting down for. And then it's just like you go into five different rooms. You're sitting on a rotating set of chairs. Uh, and there's this dude. Uh, I, don't really, I don't know what his name was. Um Mr. Mr. Regular. Oh, his name's John. And he's kind of like your prototypical, uh, like, dude, he's a bit of a goofball. And he says, geez, I love technology so much. Uh, sitting here, I think 99% of the time he's in a rocking chair. Never in one of those uh, recliners that I know of. And he, like, espouses the wonders of electricity and the life he, like, brings, uh, each time highlighting the new advances in the whatever decade it's supposed to be. And I guess it's pretty, uh, like you say, well, is this real, you know, is this the idealized or like based on reality or whatever? Uh, but he talks a lot about his refrigerator, which I mean, especially if you live in an apartment like me, when you see, you're like, holy mackerel, uh, uh, like even the refrigerator in 1950, I said, man, I could use that, uh, 
looks like it has. But yeah, it's just kind of like a history of uh, technology will be electricity and how different families use it and their singing and a little storyline. It's nice. Uh, and uh, maybe you could picture uh, slowly circling or walking maybe through the aisles of refrigerator. Uh, Lisa has refrigerators. Uh, passing them by slowly. Drifting through the aisles, maybe a washer and dryer, maybe a wash, maybe the sound of a dishwasher, which is a good sound, uh, I guess, because I, I mean, I don't have one, but when I'm at someone's house, it has that churning, chugging sound, a bit like a locomotive in a, uh, like, what do you call those things, waterfall or something. And yeah, you're drifting off, drifting deeper, deeper away. I remember when you first arrived uh, here at the carousel and you walked around uh, the one room you were in, which was set up now instead of being a living room for the characters. The characters had been removed, the tronics uh, from this room. Uh, this was the uh, 19th. 70s uh, display, uh, the carousel of uh, American something or other. I don't remember now. It's been so long. But it was a living room and two bedrooms uh, on a stage. And then the area where all the chairs were and the chairs had slowly been moved away. So that room was open with more living space and I remember you walking around and examining a kitchen table with two chairs and two different bedrooms across from one another. And then the displeasure on your face at the reading nook with two sets of cushions and picture books and everything set up there. And then an entertainment room, uh, I mean, area off uh, to the side with two more chairs. And you're looking at the chairs and then going in the bedrooms and noticing the uh, place settings in the kitchen, all in pairs. And it seemed to really, really uh, make your brow furrow and furrow. I think it was called the American Family of the Future, uh, the Carousel of the Fam. I can't. I don't know. I can't. All the outside lettering had gone away. I wondered at first if you were disgusted, but then I clearly started to sense that it was a jealousy and a bit of uh, a fuming. I think was the term. Uh, but looking back now and the time you spent uh, with me and the time you spent uh, eventually in the reading nook reading and, and, and teaching reading, uh, I didn't realize that our fateful meeting uh, uh, when you had swept me up in your net uh, and then lowering me and me trying to get you to follow me and trying to communicate when I could not speak, uh, when I could not form words or write, uh, and I could not uh, easily communicate with you other than by body language and facial expressions. Uh, 
But I did finally convince you to follow me. I think probably because you had a confidence. Uh, uh, you seemed more secure than me. Uh, more, uh, I don't know, even though you're internally and externally stronger and more powerful. And when I was acting out the, why you needed to follow me with the coughing and the pointing, and, and uh, I did know how to do a begging sign, but you still followed me at a distance, uh, and you still insisted on stopping and getting that photo album and a few other your things, and what I presume was a walking stick, but I knew it was a, a not trusting me stick as well. And to think that the impact are... Uh, connection uh, that started that evening and day uh, and then the next day uh, to think that the time we spent I, I guess in my re recollection is probably not the same as yours of how it all started but that uh, it would impact me and I guess maybe the attractions but I think it was you more than the attractions everyone says oh you lived in that park for a time before that changed. Uh, that's why you travel as a bar, teller of bard's tales. And I'd sigh and, and think of you because I knew that you're, the stories you told me and the, the fact you taught me to read and gave me books, uh, that was what really uh, led me on this journey uh, that let me become... Uh, a spreader of tales. And of course, they say, well, you're telling, isn't that one of the tales from one of those? And I'd say, well, no. I, I, you know, I couldn't mention you. But there you were back uh, when you were first scanning uh, the carousel. I can remember that you didn't know what a record player was. I think you had probably seen it on an attraction, and I showed you how it worked. Uh, that only made you more irritated. When you saw the board games we had set up on the table, uh, you instinctively knew that uh, that was quality time someone was spending there. Uh, I just I don't think you realized at the time who and whom was playing the games. You know, because none of those place settings were mine. Except for a very short time, but still, you crossed your arms and tapped your foot. And now I laugh at those things. I say, are those inside of us? Uh, those part of who who we are as creatures, uh, furrowed brows and crossed arms and sighs and tapping feet. But you know, I was new, but I knew what I had to do, what had to be done. So I tried to get you to look at the maps. Uh, and to help me understand, because uh, again, I, was, it is, I found this all very confusing. Those pathways hadn't been laid in my mind yet. And then the instructions on uh, what we needed to get, uh, uh, the scription, as uh, you would call it nowadays. Uh, but there I was pointing you at the map and you would look again and you'd look around the room and you'd look at me cross 
And uh, say, no, no, I, I, I'm trying to just uh, get you to overcome my misunderstanding for me to actually help me. I needed to. It was a faithful meeting, I thought, because I had been debating reaching out to you anyway. But you uh, pointed at the map and you pointed at the description. And then we heard uh, off uh, the coughing, and you pointed in that direction. And I said, no, 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 look here, look here, don't worry about that. We need to go. We need to figure out and find these things listed on here, uh, the attics, uh, uh, and, and get them and bring them back. And I asked you again, and then you crossed your arms and you sat right down. And again, you pointed to, to the other room and the plastic sheeting over the doorway and the little uh, clear circular. It was like uh, I hadn't set any of that up. Uh, and you wanted answers. I couldn't just get, I didn't have any. I knew what I was supposed to do, what I had been told to do. And I knew I couldn't figure quite figure it out, uh, but you wanted more, and you kept pointing and you kept tapping your feet, and I said please, and you said no, and I said come on, and I started to get ready, and I tried to do the old well, I'll just try to find it myself, and at first you almost uh, yeah, fell for that. Uh, and you started pointing out, uh, you know, the water, the amount of water I would need, and that I would need the screen from the sun. And uh, picking up and saying, no, 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 don't bring that. Bring long sleeves. Uh, what kind of excursion are you going on? And I said, does she go on excursions out beyond the park, or where did she learn all this? Uh, and then I said, maybe she's going to go with me. And then I get to the door. Uh, expecting you to follow, and you shook your head and pointed at the night sky and said, no, 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 and you made a, a motion with your whole arm like there was sunrise, uh, and I said, oh, okay, wait for the sunrise. Uh, then I pointed you and me, sunrise, uh, go, and uh, you shrugged your shoulders and pointed again where the caretaker was, uh, and you made a talking, a quack. I said, is she quacking like Serena the Swan? And I said, no, no, I got to go now. Let's go now. No, no sunrise. Uh, no, 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 no sunrise. Uh, and then you went and sat over by the rotating window that I used to communicate with the caretaker. Uh, later, I would learn that that was something used at bodegas that uh, they called them stores. Uh, but you saw all the notes uh, I had drawn, or what I'd practiced and scrolled out uh, uh, pictures or pictograms uh, for the caretaker. Those were my rough drafts saying, okay. Uh, I don't get this whole map. I don't know how to read a map. Uh, I don't know. And I didn't at the time. I didn't know how to say that or communicate that. And you were missing, you know, a key piece of information about uh, that I couldn't communicate to you how long I'd been there, what I really knew. 
And you looked through those, and you were a much better drawer than me. You started picking up pieces of scrap paper and uh, wrote a picture that I took as in there, you know, in there, uh, cough, 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 uh, a drawing of a stick stick figures. Again, is that in within us, a stick figure drawing? And I said, yeah, that's, uh, and you drew it as a bigger person. Is this a grown-up uh, compared to us? Uh, yes, it is. And the funny thing was I did know some sight words like exit uh, more as a picture. So you you realized some of that too. But then you wanted to send notes. And I said, no, 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 we got to go. And I was supposed to keep you out of it. Uh, because uh, I don't know any, that's one of the first sight words anyone learns. Uh, the letter N and the O is a picture. Uh, and stop as well. Eventually I relented and you passed, uh, uh, started passing notes in. And the notes from the caretaker couldn't come back out. Uh, they could only come in, so you would have to lean over and look, uh, is uh, they got transferred in. After you turned it, a stick would go through and come out and drag the paper. And a stick would do... Anyway, it's a complicated uh, system. And, I, you know, my memory's not perfect, but I think that's how we did it. Uh, but you started passing notes and words even back and forth. And some of the, you know, some of the words uh, weren't really words, uh, so it took a while, and you got a clearer idea of the task. Uh, but again, you had that intensity. That, but I don't know if it's bright. Bra- I, I wish I had a way to look at a brashfulness or something where you were insistent on something. And I don't know if the caretaker didn't understand or wouldn't give in. But at one point, you just stood up and walked away. And I looked at the last note you passed, and it was that sight word, no. You had told the caretaker, no. And you started to pack your things up. uh, And then you held in that photo album in your hands. uh, And you pulled out a few pictures, and you put them away in your bag. And then you sent the photo album through to the caretaker. And and I didn't see what uh, the caretaker wrote back to you, but it seemed to please you, and that was close to dawn. And so you helped me finish packing up, and we headed off uh, first through the park, and then on the roads uh, leading, you know, the the external uh, buffer of land around the park owned by the park. And then... uh, what it, uh, I guess, after the park, uh, uh, the layers uh, that they had added in, uh, where they had dug uh, a large moats and additional fencing and natural brush barriers and berms. And eventually we got to the, the checkpoint. Uh, and there were barracks there on the park side, yeah, but it was all gone. And it had even weathered quite a bit uh, over time. 
And there were tents there, and you wanted to check the tents, even though they were blown open for the most part and empty. And everyone was clearly long gone. Uh, But it said, okay, the park was very important at a time. Very, very important. And you held the map in your hand, and you sat there, and you just said, we're going to rest here because the barracks, they still had the cots and a few wool blankets. Uh, So we spent the night there. And uh, you gave me uh, the pictures to look at and a picture book, and you had a book you were reading. You even had a candle. And that was my first time sitting there watching someone read like that. Uh, I don't know the way you were fully enthralled uh, with the pages as your eyes moved across them. And the candlelight flickered as I sat there. The image, it comforts me still. Makes me feel warm. Makes me feel like a wool blanket was made from something so soft. And the candle was emanating warm, warm heat enough to fill the room. And that your comfort was all-encompassing. If filling the tent with a sense of security and relaxation and confidence. And then the morning came and you had brought a, made sure we had water and we had some dried food to eat. And you showed me where we were stopping at the, uh, uh, rug store. I don't know, rug stores or something they were once called, uh, Armacies, uh, you pointed the two ones at right at the edge of the property at the park, right outside, the two closest ones. And we went to those, and the first one was almost by itself. There was a place, I guess, where they used uh, petroleum uh, to fill vehicles, and another place for eating, uh, fast fast eating at a but we went to the pharmacy, and it was complete, completely and formally emptied of all of the what we were looking for, and of all staples, but not in a messy way. There were still things left on all the shelves, but they were just uh, things like trinkets and souvenirs and baubles, uh, things that had no utility or value in this present time. I mean, maybe a few things, uh, if you didn't have your own Serena the Swan, or I didn't have Buddy the Bear, uh, but uh, we had our comfort items already. You were very stumped by how formally it was cleared out, and you insisted on checking out the petroleum station and the fast-eating places, uh, which were just as formally emptied. Uh, and then we went to the next closest pharmacy, which had a few other uh, fast-eating places and shops, but it was still very close to the property. And it was all those places were in the same condition. Uh, still pretty well uh, dealing with the, the changing of the time. 
but on the inside, empty in a way, he said, oh, now I know. Oh, very military. Mary formally, by the book, emptied out. Uh, nothing to scavenge. You would know it on site. you say, oh, there's not even a bother looking. Not even bother looking for anything hidden. Everything is gone in these buildings. Not worth our time. And you sat there and thought... Uh, and we spent the evening again there uh, to make sure. Maybe we waited for night to fall. Moving on foot was slow, and you seemed conservative in all of your movements. Uh, even though I said, well, it doesn't seem to be anything to be concerned about. But even when dawn came, you were looking at the map and uh, shaking your head, and I was... Uh, Without words asking, what's, where are we going? What's going on? And uh, it was a different look on your face, but I could tell it was a look of, uh, my gut doesn't like this. And it was even marked that the caretaker said, well, try, if the first two don't work, go to this next one. And so we did, uh, but that was in an area that was denser with more shops and lots of parking and hotels, uh, lodging places. uh, And you didn't like it uh, one bit. And things here were more messy. Uh, Wind was carrying old paper and plastic. And you were more rushed, and we rushed into the armacy. This one had been cleared out, but not in a formal way. The floor was covered with uh, stuffed animals and books and coffee cups uh, that were cracked. Uh, but there was nothing there we could use, even though it wasn't cleaned out in a clean way. And you walked around and got an idea of, uh, and double-checked to see if there was anything we could use. Uh, I know she picked up a small rectangular yellow object, uh, and you put it in your bag. And while you were leaning down to get that, you saw a pile of, uh, maps and books and I guess what we would call ephemera about the park. Uh, one of the maps was laminated and also showed the outside areas as cartoony. You were looking at your map and you were looking at this map uh, and you were shaking your head. And I, I didn't understand it again. When I looked at the maps, I just found them confusing still at that time. I can remember... Even though now I could read one, how it just looked like uh, scribbles. And then you dug through uh, the pile of books on the floor looking for anything, and you picked up a book uh, with a lot of pictures in it, an older black-and-white photography book of the park. Uh, You started scrolling through it, you put that in the laminated map in your bag, and you made a let's go symbol, and you seem to have changed your mind about something.
and I followed you off, and we quickly returned to the barracks at the edge of the park uh, and stayed there. And then we headed back into the park the next morning, and that's when you took me to the edge of Toy Town, where you had your things stored and the clock tower. And we climbed up there with your bag and the map and the old pictures, and you filled your bag with some other maps you had stored at the base of the tower. And you were looking through the old maps and looking through black and white photo books and scanning the park, and I didn't understand at first. Uh, but you, then you seemed to want me to understand. You started pointing at different spots. And we weren't too far from... Uh, the carousel either, but, uh, and you were pointing, and I, I guess I didn't know what the uh, underdoors were, uh, that they were an entire lower level of the park underneath the ground, uh, where all the cast members would go from point A to point B without being seen by the guests. Uh, even the pictures, again, like the maps, they said, okay, that's just a dark picture of uh, someone walking in a hallway. It wasn't until later when you showed me, until we went there, that it all clicked together. But something had clicked for you. And you even showed me on the map how they were listed. But then you, and again, this is me with uh, the ability of uh, understanding better. But then you pointed to an old map and you showed how in this real old map there was an extra set of underdoors. And then you showed it to me in the uh, black and white photos, uh, and you pointed at the photos, and you pointed at it, and I still, but it was always a black and white photos of an employee clinic, and happy employees there, uh, smiling and, and being happy. And then down the hall in another picture, the hub of security uh, but then you showed maps moving forward uh, years later that it was no longer listed, the, the clinic or the underdoor or the security hub, which makes sense. You know, they didn't want anyone. I, 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 it kind of makes sense, I guess. Uh, and it was like a forgotten underdoor, an unlisted underdoor. And you pointed at it, and then you pointed uh, just to, to the right of the sinkhole, and that that's where we were going to go. And, of course, I had been, I guess, I had been so interested in you in how you interacted and had to focus on communicating that it was just a low level of uh, concern of, like, well, we failed our mission going out there. What are we going to do now? Or maybe it was that your confidence and your security and your self, uh, I don't know if that is what they said of self-esteem, the way you held yourself uh, erased most of the doubt uh, from my mind, even though the future was uncertain. And I followed you and we worked our way towards the, the big street of America and you started popping uh, they're trying to pop the uh, the hole covers, but they had all been fused down. And you sighed and you frowned, and then we went back to your things and got along the length of rope. Uh, 
and tied it off. And I, I was like, what is, she, what is she up to? And then he climbed over and, and you started to look uh, over the side. I said, oh, the sink. Uh, and uh, you pointed that uh, there was the underdoor. It just took a little digging. Uh, fully intact, uh, very well made, uh, you know, except for the sinking part uh, that it is just clearly sheared away. And so we climbed in there very easily. Your adeptness and your strength uh, and your ability to explain things with motions made it much easier for me. And then you had your lights, uh, so we got in that underdoor. And uh, just after a few feet in, I guess uh, it had kept everything out. It was uh, It was dark and it was dusty. But it was clear that this wasn't forgotten by the staff that worked there, uh, for it was pretty pristine. And we passed the security hub, which was now the security of the security hub. Uh, you had to explain to me much later in a laughter that uh, that's where they monitored the staff that monitors the staff or something. Uh, but then you went down to the, the, the clinic was still there as well. And not only that, because uh, there was so much extra space in there, that that's where all of the things that had been, uh, that the barracks had taken from the off-site locations, all of the non-perishables and the scriptions and the uh, cyclins, uh were there, and yeah, it took a lot of work to get in there, uh, but you were determined no door, no lock uh, was going to stop you, uh, and actually it didn't even take you that long, you knew levers and uh, motions and how to get it done, and you even had found keys, uh, which you tried, and they even worked in two of the four doors. And soon we were in, and you were looking at the list of things we needed and going back and forth and uh, then making sure the door closed and relocking the doors that you had keys to and making a whisper sound on your lips. Uh, and uh, basically that this was our secret. I knew exactly what that meant uh, and then slowly climbing back out and even covering our tracks. Uh, they said, do you not even want the caretaker to see? I didn't understand. I guess part of me still doesn't quite understand it, but uh, who am I to question your wisdom at all? And we returned and, and you had brought uh, some food and even some fresh water and O-Raid, which was a drink, a sugary drink. Uh, mostly that was for the caretaker. And uh, you started making soups as uh, the days went by in the kitchen, the working kitchen. And we began to use the two-place settings and the two reading seats and the listening to the records uh, 
sitting in the easy chairs and eventually laughing and and waiting uh, till the caretaker was cared for. And, and then the time came, you and the caretaker had been mostly exchanging messages as you kind of taught me more and more words and letters. Uh, and just a few weeks went by, and uh, then you were confident, uh, and you went outside, and uh, there was a bunch of, I said, well, the caretaker's not going to come back through that way. Uh, but I didn't, I, I, I didn't quite, you know, I don't under, understand what you're up to. And then you came back in and then a few more days went by, I guess, for the caretaker to go into another, I guess you didn't trust the caretaker to be, you know, hundred percent. Uh, and then there was a knock, uh, at the sliding entry door, uh, that had been disengaged so we could just roll it back and forth. And uh, you opened the door, and there she was, our caretaker. And uh, it was just a strange experience. Again, another one I'll always have with me, that it was all three of us uh, basking at one another, and us looking at her and looking at one another and her looking at us, and we were all just smiling and laughing and disbelief, uh, and understanding, I mean, I was the one that had spent the least amount of time at the park, uh, but without the caretaker and without you, I wouldn't have had what I needed. You knew, uh, at this time it wasn't complicated. Why was the caretaker providing for you or for us? Uh, who was here before me? And all those things, it didn't even matter. Uh, it was just like, uh, Meeting old friends you never met, uh, or meeting a family felt so good. We just kept laughing and laughing and smiling and then sitting and drinking and eating soup and drinking O-Raid. And then you pulled out of your bag that orange rectangle or a yellow rectangle and a plastic wrap and you ripped it open and the caretaker laughed, and you nodded. And I didn't understand at all what it was or what it meant. Uh, and I guess anything the caretaker had, you wouldn't allow in, but you pulled out the three pictures you had kept in your bag that you had kept with you of this other woman who had once worked at the park. And then you took us both by the hand, and I remember it was late... Uh, in the day, almost dusk, uh, at that moment when the sun warms everything with its lights, and we set it off across the park, and it was a camera, and you arranged uh, photos uh, that you wanted the three of us to take, or sometimes, I said, first it took a lot of work for you to figure out the timer and how to position the camera and all that, uh, but we went to the fairy tale boats uh, and took our picture there, the three of us uh, with the little leaf boats. Uh, and then to the dark side of the moon, in front of a crater, and in front of the gum wall, uh, smiling and beaming and 
just feeling good. I knew I was a part of something that had meaning to you. Now I look at it in this way. You were doing something that had meaning to you that you didn't even understand why it had meaning to you. And then we went to Curly Sue, uh, to Curly Sue, my, I, for, I don't know what the real name of that contraction was, but uh, Ride the Rush. And you uh, had rearranged that ride quite a bit, so we took of uh, the townspeople that uh, uh, had been soaked uh, by your moving them to hide in the town. And in one of the caves with the waterfall, uh, and then us uh, sitting in a chair on the gliding ride, and even I pretending uh, that my seatbelt was stuck and laughing, and then us with some of the farm fish at the seas, and then the strange escapes of uh, the unrepaired seas ride, and trying to get in and out of the aquavator, laughing. It was like a I have a place to always go, these memories uh, from you. And then this is spending the night in the conservatory uh, in your reading areas. Uh, I think I'll always treasure the tent and the barracks a little bit more. Uh, but you showed me how I could use that attraction to learn to read even more, but I had no interest. I only wanted to learn from you. And then we went back to Toy Town, and you showed the uh, caretakers through Toy Town, and we took our pictures there. We took our picture up at the top of the clock tower, and we took one of you climbing the clock tower. And then different uh, pictures in the candy-based ride that you had painted, and uh, seeing your work, and in front of the different... uh, beautiful work you had done Uh, makes me feel so good thinking about it so rested and comfortable and the panda ride we rode bikes we we, we took a while this was again over a few days it started i get the memory becomes one memory for me one late afternoon but i know it was a few days I know we had to fix those bikes up to ride them through that ride. Uh, and then, you know, going and make it, we, and we had to go and get all the food from the, uh, uh, the river cruise and uh, the trails there. And we all got in the hammocks. Uh, we took our pictures in the hammocks and you showed us how to swing in a hammock. That was so much fun. And then back at the carousel, and uh, I don't always remember everything perfectly, but I treasure the memories I had, uh, that I have, the moments I spent with you, uh, the moments at dusk and the moments at dawn, particularly, I treasure so and then also the idea that you couldn't just take the pictures out of the camera that uh, that you had to be developed. I mean, you've always read those instructions while well, you didn't always understand them. And the fact that we had to retake most of the pictures again, and we laughed about that too. And then you went through and 
learned to, to develop them. But that was a much later, much, much later. Your impatience uh, combined with your stubborn patience uh, is another thing I'll never forget. But your love of reading and communicating and of treasuring and of moments uh, of seizing those moments are the things that'll be with me the longest. Uh, the comforting uh, flickering of candlelight and the look on your face. Uh, the soft, faraway look as you read. Uh, I'll never forget that. Uh, so thank you so much. All right, everybody, as you're in bed there, resting deeper. And falling asleep, I wanted to do a review run-through of our most recent series that just came to a conclusion, and it didn't even have a name. And I talk about, these are the kind of episodes where I talk in a slow, soothing, lulling voice about my creative process, maybe some influences, and some things that came up. But I do it in a really meandering way, and I know some people will listen during the day to hear this, uh, but, you know, I'll package it as best I can in a nice, lulling I mean, I'm overly verbose uh, and prone to tangents, obviously. So let me think about what I want to talk about. I do want to talk about the issues around naming the show. Uh, I guess, like, this was a bit of a departure in a bunch of different ways, and I did try to fuse a lot of things that have been successful in our last uh, few series. Uh, this was also the first series that started on our new schedule. So I'll talk about that. Uh, and I'll talk about what came up and really and uh, how I broke the episodes down, uh, which is very similar to the normal process and the r- normal writing process of the show. Uh, and then uh, I guess so, so I'll talk about the, the writing schedule first and then maybe talk about the influences because the, the the genesis of this idea precedes the podcast. And I even believe it's an idea that I've discussed on the podcast before. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so this was the first episode or the first series. Uh, it, I don't know what number of series it is as we've gone from serial stories to trying to do something a little bit more episodic and modular as we uh, named it with uh, the Agatha series. Uh, but this was our first series of 2018, I believe, and uh, the first series as we moved to a twice-a-week schedule. In the past, it would have come out every Thursday. And instead, I don't know, I, I, I always just assume it comes out every 10 days, but I don't think mathematically that's accurate, but every third episode. And so that goes to the writing schedule, because when I was scheduling it, at this point, I don't take any time off of writing new episodes unless, uh, like, I'm not able to, like, which will come up in the talking about the schedule. But uh, otherwise, like, as soon as one series concludes, I'm writing uh, on schedule. I don't ever, I, I don't have time to serialize the stories anymore with the moving train of the podcast. So I'll usually just start writing the first episode right away. Uh, but this time I said, okay, well now I, instead of having a seven day writing deadline, it seems like I'll have a 10 day writing deadline because we'll only come out with three episodes of this series every month instead of four. 
And for the first few episodes, I did stick to that. And I did notice a couple of things. And anybody that writes anything or has tried will notice uh, if you give yourself a little bit of extra time, sometimes you, you, you like getting used to a new writing schedule it can involve uh, some unfocus, uh, especially when you know, well, I have an extra day. So it is okay if I, like, uh, what was that? What did my phone, you know, check your phone notifications or whatever. Now, just for new listeners, I'll talk about that. So the, there's uh, the, the uh, this series and then our new series uh, is a written series. It's not scripted so much as it is outlined and re-outlined with dialogue in it. And I do one. I used to do one of those a week when we were on a three-day-a-week schedule. Now every third episode is a written episode. And then one episode out of every three episodes in rotation is a TV-based episode. And then one episode is a kind of made-up improv story or half-fiction, half-personal essay story, like stream of consciousness. Uh, so that's the schedule. It's like it will go TV episode... A uh, trending Tuesday style episode and then a uh, written episode. And the reason that is, is because that's the only thing that's sustainable. Uh, uh, So much work goes into the creation of the podcast. And uh, those three different style episodes use three different skills and drain three different creative reservoirs uh, that can't provide, they can't like, uh, they get tapped out when those episodes are created. So like a TV episode involves a lot of watching, a lot of note taking and a lot of contemplating and observing. Like I watch it the way I choose a TV show is cause I watch it about, if I say, well, if I could watch an episode five times without dis immediately disliking the show forever, uh, and be able to do that, uh, like three or four times a month, uh, uh, so if I could consume four episodes 20 times a month, then I can watch the show, then that show will work. And obviously there's not a lot of TV shows that fit those parameters. Uh, so that's how I choose a TV show. So that's one type of episode and one reservoir that it drains from or skill set it uses. Uh, then the, the made-up episodes involve me being observational all of the time to collect material and those are very, very draining creating them. They just uh, have to stay as calm as possible and stay in the moment and trust my gut, like all various things that I'm, uh, uh, and then those may take more editing in the end. And then the written episodes take uh, writing every single day and uh, trying to not, try to be focused when I'm writing so that I have enough material to record an episode and also dealing with procrastination. And so when I started the series, I was writing on a 10-day schedule. So every day, I have a half hour of focused writing time set aside to write the episodes. It's one of the first things I do in, in the day uh, because I consider it the most important thing because all the other episodes rely on this. It's not like the writing just influences the episodes I'm writing. It helps develop the skills that uh, leak their way into everything I'm making for the podcast. And it's also challenging in, in a fulfilling way um, that while it's hard work and it's work I have to do every day, uh, without it, the podcast wouldn't be sustainable or exist, um, which is kind of a, a, hard to put, put into words. But 
So, so every morning I was writing, and instead of having to have it done in seven days, for example, started on a Thursday, recorded on the next Thursday. Now it was like starting it on a Friday or whatever, and then having to record it on the next Monday or Tuesday or whatever, 10 days is later. And for the first few episodes, like of any series or the act one of anybody, like, it's like, oh boy, there's always a buzz when you, for me. And so the writing always goes really well for the first one or two episodes. Not all the time, but most of the time. Because the idea is still fresh. It hasn't really, uh, I haven't hit the point where it becomes really hard work. Um, and I can, I can usually maintain a pretty good focus for those 30 minutes every day for 10 days. Or in the past, uh, seven days, so that by the halfway through that writing time, I'm doing rewriting and replotting and brainstorming, saying, okay, that doesn't work, uh, brainstorming and uh, de- de- deepening my relationship with the characters or whatever whatever is happening. Uh, so this story started out with like a lot of enthusiasm, and for the first two episodes, I think... Uh, I don't have, I, I don't keep a, like a diary of it, but I, I feel like it was good. The writing was really flowing and having the extra two or three days allowed me to actually do like extra stage, like the first day writing to be really relaxed and just kind of playing with, uh, what is the theme? What are we exploring? And then on my day two of writing, I'd be like, okay, what in this series, what's the attraction uh, what is this like? Uh, what is the challenge? What is the need here? Does the attraction need something, or does the girl need something? And okay, then what? what how are we? How are we? Then on day three, four, five. Okay, how is the plot uh, gonna? Or the physical makeup and the challenges which would make up the plot, uh, uh, providing the, what we need to get to the end of uh, the episode. And how does that play in, uh, I, don't, I don't know. So how is it driving the story? And, and I mean, obviously, with uh, there's plenty of room for meanders. In this, if you're new to the show, there's an irony in that the more structured and more work that goes into the beginning of the episodes and the tighter the episodes can be going in, or on the Tuesday episodes, the more comfortable and uh, fully formed the idea is flowing out of me, Actually, the more room there is for the episode to go really slow and seem convoluted uh, and pointless uh, is weird. Like, the more structure, uh, then the looser the episode is going to be because it gives me a giant amount of confidence and comfortableness in the moment, in the recording moment. And it kind of gives me limitless options because I'm able to say, okay, these are the seven points we need to reach in the episode. Uh, so in between those seven points, we have a lot of freedom, but anytime stuff to, starts to peter off, uh, we know where we're going. Just like a Sunday drive, in, in reality, if the driver knows where they're going and they always know how to get there, they can take an endless amount of side roads. If they say, well, I have a you know a photographic memory of these roads, uh, so I know how to get to where we're going even if we take these uh, 55 left turns or whatever. And if you know the schedule uh, and the time frame and where you're going, you can take, I think, I think that makes sense. 
And so the writing started off, like I said, on the 10-day schedule. And I really felt like it, it, the first few episodes really benefited from that. And actually gave me, I think the characters benefited from that, even though she was faceless and nameless and will remain so. Uh, that was kind of a test uh, to, to, to try out story-wise to say, okay, here's a blank, more blank canvas of a character uh, for the listeners to, to have uh, uh, to have in a relationship with. And because of the episodic nature of the story, like each new episode was her first arrival uh, and departure from an attraction for the most part. Uh, so there wasn't existing relationships. So it was a bit more of a, I don't know, I just felt like it added like an extra density and uh, dreaminess, uh, like almost like a faceless character. I mean, to me, she was not faceless, and hopefully, hopefully, to you, she was not faceless. Uh, but maybe initially, where it was more out of focus. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, uh, but I don't know if it's super important either. But so, where was I? Okay, well, writing schedule is. Uh, but after I think like two or three episodes, uh, I think I caught a cold or something. And I also knew I was going to be out of town. I think this was in February. Yeah, so it about probably already recorded two or three episodes. And I think some other things happened where I fell off of the cushion. Because uh, one of the things about the podcast is the episodes are always coming out. So content always has to be being recorded, being prepared, uh, which is one stage of making the show, being recorded, which is another stage of the show, then being edited by the editors, another stage, then being re- remixed by Scoots, and then being finalized and uploaded and everything. So that actually is like a five-week uh, ideally process uh, that there's uh, five weeks between at least the pre-production in the release, ideally it'd be five weeks between the recording and the release. Uh, but a lot of times we fall into like the one or two week thing when, you know, life happens. And so that was the case very quickly within two or three episodes life had happened. And I said, okay, well I have to get, it got to a point luckily it wasn't that far into the new year where I said, okay, I got to go back to a seven day writing and recording schedule uh, because they need these episodes uh, if, if finished, and I don't have the luxury of a 10-day. And at first, I was Arctic. So I think I probably did three episodes on a 10-day writing schedule, and then I went back. Uh, and I think the fourth episode maybe was a little bit fully formed or, you know, the story was a little bit more helpful. Or either the third or the fourth one where I went to a seven-day, I said, okay, this story, I kind of know it a little bit better. It's a little bit more apparent or something. Maybe that was Curly Sue. Let's see. The first episode was uh, the fairy tale boat ride. The second one was the old school uh, dark side of the moon. I don't know what the third episode was. There was gliding. Maybe that was the third episode. So maybe that was it where I was like, okay, this one. No, because that was a very... That one was a little bit story dense, and it took some figuring to figure that one out. But maybe, so maybe it was a four, I don't know. But one, at some point, I returned to a seven-day writing schedule. And I was pretty much stuck to that till the end of the series, because like, life got in the way, I think, one or two other times. Uh, I think there was a two-week period where 
I might not have recorded one of those episodes because I was out of town one week and then I was sick the next week. Um, but I'm not sure about that. But, but uh, whatever. At some point, I returned to a seven-day-a-week writing schedule. And it still worked because they said, okay, those muscles are still there and muscle memory still there. And having a seven-day writing schedule has a little bit more immediacy because it's not the, – the, um, that's the hard thing about sleep with me. The deadlines are not optional. Uh, just because of the amount of time I put into the show, like I don't have any extra time. So it's not like I can say, it, or it comes with a great consequence if I say, well, I'm supposed to record it on Friday, but I'll try to record it on Saturday or Sunday. Uh, I already have those days are probably booked or say, okay, well, uh, if I push it to that and then something comes up, like, hey, can you go pick uh, somebody up or something? Or, hey, I forgot to tell you, I need you here. Uh, it creates a cascading effect. So the podcast, it's just like laying train track for a moving train, which is a metaphor a lot of people use. And it's like, okay, i got to keep laying this track down. But that's a good thing. It's a huge motivating factor to get it done. And it helps keep, keep me focused. The deadlines uh, are uh, a symbiotic thing, maybe. So... Uh, going back to a 70 thing actually kept me a little bit more focused. It gave me a little bit less uh, wiggle room or the ability to be a little bit less precious and say, okay, let's just focus. What's the next story problem? Uh, what's uh, unclear here? So maybe I'll talk about how I built out one of the episodes that I can remember uh, here yeah, while I talk, but I think I was trying to, oh, I was talking about the genesis of the idea. So that's basically switching from a 10-day to a 7-day. Ideally, for this next series we're doing, I'll be switching back to a 10-day schedule. And the day I'm recording this was the first writing day of that series, So, but I had done some pre-writing and stuff uh, and daydreaming, which comes before the writing, uh like ideally, like a month ahead of time or two months ahead of time, I have a, a good strong idea of what we're going to do, and then it strengthens the closer and closer we get to the when I commence writing. And this was like one of these ones. The series we're doing next, uh, uh, I don't want to tease it yet, just because an episode hasn't been recorded. Um, but I had uh, it was it's a it's a uh, season two or something. Uh, that a lot of people like. And, and I said, uh, okay, when I have an idea, I'll do it. And I had an idea like probably eight months ago. And that idea came at the wrong time because I said, okay, well, I don't have a spot for that series uh, till next year. So I don't know. Uh, and I don't think I, I, I think I like said, okay, like if we're walking or something, we can discuss this more. And then the idea clicked. I said, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Whatever my story brain or the story song said, hey, like it was pitching me the story. Because uh, it has to have some sort of, uh, it has to have some sort of fuel that's going to get it through 10 or 12 episodes uh, in that renewable fuel for these ones that are more episodic where it's like, okay, can that operate in its own vacuum each time too? Can it carry through 10 or 12 episodes? Does it have viable characters and does it have uh, the ability to, to generate a uh, good, good content. And so what was it? What was I saying? Uh, I have no idea why I brought any of this up. Oh, so the idea came to me and they said, well, this isn't the best time. So we talked about it a little bit. And then 
it, it got more concrete. Like this part of me that generates the stories or whatever, that's not a part of my whatever subconscious or whatever you want to call it. Or more likely some sort of collective unconscious. I don't know. It said, hey, I said, holy cow, that's good. Like whatever the the, the thematic thing was, it was going to like carry everything through and tie it all together. I said, okay, that's good. We can I can see that generating everything. And I don't think I wrote it down. Maybe I wrote it down somewhere. But it was such a strong idea that I said, I'll never forget that. Uh, maybe, yeah, it was probably eight months ago. And yeah, it was probably eight months ago. And I said, okay. And then I went back on to whatever the series was, uh, probably after Glass Slipper. And then I had to move on to As North Pole Returns, or Returns, and then this series that we're just doing, the theme park one. And during the theme park series, I did have to start uh, saying, okay, what was that idea again? And I can honestly, I have no idea. Like, I have a general a sense of it but the actual uh, the powerful throughput thing uh, that would make it work it was gone and i said okay i have an idea of the place and the time it was taking uh in a general sense of the situation but whatever uh uh the action reaction driver was it was gone and it wasn't a, it was some sort of subtle thing where I, it wasn't brainstormable. Uh, and I said, oh, mo- oh no, like really I did. I was like, uh, this is probably when I wasn't feeling good. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cause that would have been three episodes would have been done. So I was like, okay, I need something in about, uh, two months. Uh, and then I said, what am I going to do here? Uh, cause I didn't have any other, uh, uh fully formed things ready to go. And here's the great thing about learning and growing, I guess, is like I did have to say, okay, well, this is a season two. We have strong characters. And uh, let's trust that the idea is either going to return to us or that's going to be okay. Because it was so early, I said, like, but that we're going to do, we're going to return to that series, probably. Let's reassess things in a few weeks. And let's see if the idea comes back. And it didn't come back, but I kept saying, okay, let's just trust whatever this process is, the story swamp, as I call it, that the story will be there when we need it, uh, that we'll remember this thematic thing, or we'll figure out something else, or we could go in another direction, and the story swamp will also provide that. Maybe we have to do a new series, or maybe we'll return to another old series. And then I also keep a list of non-sleep-with-me ideas uh, in the event I ever uh, have any extra time to do, like, another podcast or something, uh, which is not something I'm pitching or saying is is happening anytime soon. And those are other ideas when I'm going for a walk that I'll ponder and say, huh, like, is someone doing a podcast about this, or how would this story play out? And I had another story idea and it was kind of there, and I said, oh, wow, that's an interesting idea. Again, having a conversation with this in the story swap or whatever, and saying, hmm, uh, so wh- how would that work? Oh, okay. And just general, uh, these are general premises, not uh, like either based on a character or an idea. And there was one premise that came up that I kind of liked, and I said, wow, if I was going to work on another fictional podcast, uh, I had these two competing premises, and I said, well, I would work on one of those, uh, but I don't have time. So, again, it's kind of like a kid. You say, listen, I love your ideas. Uh, let's keep a track on them. 
but unfortunately, I don't have any time to work on that now. But respecting and vindicating him, and I guess probably writing him down because you don't want to, uh, you like that's another form of uh, whatever you call it, so you don't lose it uh, and saying, oh, that idea is precious. We just can't explore it any further. But this, both ideas were kind of sticky in my brain. And I said, that is interesting, though, thinking about what you're saying. And then eventually what happened was like one of those things with like one of those, what are those called, graphs or something, where lines start crossing. And I started getting closer and closer to the end of the theme park series. And I didn't have, I said, that premise hadn't returned to me. And I said, well, okay, what do we have otherwise? Like, we could start from scratch. We, we do have the ability that we could say, okay, let's just do a season two of this series. You know, we've been making this podcast long enough that, yeah, the first episode, if we don't have a, a throughput premise, it'll be a lot more work uh, of brainstorming and some, like, bulldozing level brainstorming in blue sky, whatever you want to call it, to generate the a premise for that, but those are very strong characters, so we probably could do it. And again, this is stuff I don't, that doesn't come natural to me, all this like, uh, kind of like a self-parenting or kindness and loving of uh, story ideas, but uh, it's become a necessity. And I said, okay, don't worry, we'll, we'll figure it out. And again, I guess it's just spending time in the story swamp. I say, okay, we'll get down there. Story swamp's not the greatest place, you know, it's a swamp. But we'll probably get down there. We'll find our way. And then, like, this is like a, maybe the idea of loosening the ropes or whatever, the knots. And then I said, wait a second. Uh, and then I started saying, let me spend some time with these characters again, because I do love them too. And maybe talking to the characters or whatever. This is all when I'm not working, like when I'm walking or taking a shower or something. And then one of those two premises, and this is a dangerous thing. You can't go in with a premise for another podcast or another medium and shoehorn it in there. But then that part of me said, well, what about that other premise we had? And I said, well, that really won't work. Uh, and I said, well, what about the underlying idea? And I said, the under, tell me more. What's this underlying idea? And I said, well, what about this character? It does share the traits with the character based on that premise. Uh, and I said, oh, really? Tell me more about that. And I said, we'll see. They're both. And I said, okay. And then something else happened across my path. And I said, oh, wait a second. You're right. And then that was it. I said, okay, now we have a new premise uh, with this, this, this second season. And so that's what we're doing next uh, on a seven day. Are we on a, no, now we're on a 10 day writing schedule right now. And today was day one. Uh, so I guess uh, that was a long way of saying what I was uh, pre-writing I was doing. And now today, day ones are always of, an, of a new episode are usually, like I said, kind of saying, okay, well, let, well, I'll go into episode. Let me tell you about the genesis of the idea for this series we just did. Uh, since I told you about the genesis, uh, genesis of the idea for the next series. And then I'll break, maybe break, try to break down an episode. Uh, so the genesis of this idea, actually, I thought it pre pre preceded the podcast, but it actually doesn't because I remember I was sober. And I got sober after I started the podcast. And so this idea was after I started the podcast that this idea came up, but it wasn't for the podcast. 
and it occurred in all places of uh, Legoland, uh, California, near San Diego. And my so this would have been the first year of the podcast. So this would have been 2014, February 2014. And uh, I was very freshly sober, and uh, it was a long weekend, and... Uh, uh, my, my ex and I decided to take our daughter to, uh, Legoland in uh, San Diego, uh, for the long weekend. And she, uh, let's see. So, so it was 2014. So what I said, so she was seven and kind of the perfect age, just at the end of the perfect age for Legoland. If you're thinking about going to one of the two Legolands, uh, a mature seven is a, a, probably the pinnacle of Legoland experience. Maybe a six or five might be better. Uh, but my daughter had a great time. She she was a mature seven, but but like uh, also a kid seven. So like she was able to enjoy everything. But I think any more mature, in it, it would have seemed a little bit kiddy. But there is a place where they get to drive their own car. Uh, but that had a long line. Uh, so we went the first day. We went to Legoland. The first ride, or one of the first rides, is a fairy tale boat ride. And, uh, it was even, we were waiting in line for a while, not super long, but I was just sitting there observing, you know, soaking it in. Uh, and there was, uh, these, the boat, it was a boat ride and the boats were made to look like Lego leaf boats, leaf boats, Lego leaf boats. That's a mouthful. And they worked their way through fairy tale Lego based scenes, uh, and I just liked the image of this slow-moving leaf, uh, how it was like uh, plastic and based in Legos, but kind of uh, evocative of nature of a leaf floating in a river. And it just seemed very, uh, I don't know, very enticing to me and, and then very sleepy. Like I could picture a child curled up in the boat, uh, in the boat sleeping. And this is the kind of things I think about when I'm waiting in line. And I just kept thinking about that image, and I guess because I was with my daughter, like thinking about this young girl uh, sleeping in this boat, and then imagining this was daytime, but then imagining what it was like at night, and then, the, 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 yeah, that would be a pretty cool place to sleep, and then just uh, personifying the ride as this mother figure. And I said, that's an interesting idea, like uh, personifying the, the attractions, uh in these roles of raising a child, I said, we were just having this discussion in line, me and my brain or whatever, saying, well, so she would live in the theme park. Uh, and I said, that's a nice story idea, probably not for sleep with me, but I said, that could make for something interesting. And again, it was very evocative and it just called to me, like all of the other stories I do. The idea was, uh, it kept calling back to me, but podcast idea or not, I would think about it. I'd say, man, uh, I love the idea of a girl uh, growing up in an abandoned theme park uh, and that the rides are, um, something's going on with the attractions uh, that they're a part of, uh, maybe a parental unit or a sibling unit or whatever uh, you want to decide by your own meaning. Uh, so it was an idea I couldn't forget, but again, like that was 2014, and that was as formed as it became. And again, I didn't think, I said, well, I don't know if it fits with sleep with me. And I couldn't see its legs in the rest of the structure. 
And I always have kind of a general idea of like where I'm slotting things. Uh, and if I don't have something to go in a slot uh, over a year, I'm trying to plan out the show. It's like, uh, okay, well, what would go in that if, if we're right currently kind of doing new series, second season, holiday series, uh, new series, second season uh, type uh, release? Uh, there was always stuff slotted in there. Or if it wasn't slotted and I said, okay, well, what, uh, what will we put in there? They say, well, what about that girl in the theme park? I say, well, what more do you have? Uh, and that part of me would be like, I don't know. I just see her. I, I think I'm interested in it. And I'd say, yeah, I find it interesting too. But how would that be a podcast that puts people to sleep? Um, and again, after making it fully formed, it's a much different situation than when the idea is just in its infancy. To be like, okay, yeah, you're right. I don't see it. And there's this whole idea in podcasting now. Or there always has been, but it's called audio first. It's like a lot of content creators are audio first. They're making their podcast to be a really good podcast. You think about everyone at Night Vale Presents or people like Paul Bay or Lauren Shippen. Um, yeah, like uh, they make things audio first. They make these great podcasts and then they may translate into other mediums. Uh, but they're leading audio first. And the same thing goes for sleep with me. It's like, uh, not only is it audio first, but it's a sleep with me first. And then I have to say, no, 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 no. It's sleep with me first. Not just good story first. Like, yeah, we might have a good story idea, but it might not be a sleep with me idea. As we said with this new series, I said, well, those are great ideas, but they're not sleep with me ideas. Uh, and this comes from making mistakes. Uh, there was, uh, uh, two series I did early on. I mean, and I was in a much different situation where I was way more desperate for material and I had much less experience uh, that I took ideas that weren't sleep with me first. And I said, well, I have this story idea ready to go in this premise. Let's just start making episodes so we can have content to release. And early on, those didn't necessarily work because I said, well, this isn't really a sleep with me uh, first idea. It's all, and they were, uh, they weren't even audio first, actually, ideas. They were, uh, yeah, but it, so it didn't work out. Uh, neither one of those series even reached completion because they said, this isn't working as a sleep. I think I got it to like where it was audio first, but I said, well, this isn't sustainable for a sleep with me episode, uh, week after week. Uh, so, but, so this idea, but I kept coming back to it and there is something dreamy about a theme park and, um, but there's a lot of themes that you have to be very careful with, with sleep with me. So I said, I don't know if I could avoid all of those uh, massive themes, uh, with that. So maybe not, but the idea, you know, it stuck with me and eventually I got, uh, I don't have the next where the idea, uh, evolved next, but at some point it evolved next to be like, Oh, you know what? No, I think that is a sleep with me idea. Like, uh. The idea of eat, maybe that was the next evolution that each ride would be a parental or a sibling type figure, and that it would be more about her relationship with the attraction than the the who or the who what where and why. I think that was the issue because the idea of the, that the situation, uh, the who what where and why, 
uh, who is this girl in the theme park that uh, is just uh, that's one place you could explore. But I was like, oh, if we explore for sleep with me, might not work, uh, especially if you want to relate to her. Uh, But uh, as the lead, as the main through point, uh, the where. I guess, like, maybe that is what we led with in some sense. It's more of a relational thing, but uh, the why, why is she there? No, 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 can't even touch that. I mean, I can know why, or you can imagine why, but to to plumb why for 11 episodes is the main intent. It couldn't work uh, when probably that's, again, something that can be touched upon but not uh, those depths can't be plumbed into. And there has to be depths to plumb into. Otherwise, the show, there's no way to make a 45-minute podcast episode. But but I said, oh, if the focus is her relationship with the attraction and that some lesson or something, some sort of exchange has to happen, some sort of healing or lesson uh, for one or the other or both, they said that's very contained. That's non-serial, so it's ep- it has episodic potential, and that means we can keep a lot of these uh, who, what, where, and why is at the periphery. If she's r- interacting uh, with a, a, like a personified non-human, uh, that's a different level of possibility than if she's engaging with an equal or some other human being character, uh, it's going to expose a lot more. uh, It's going to expose her humanity in a much different way. And in this way, I said, okay, this is open to a whole lot of audience projection, which, again, I I think I learned from in both ways from this. Maybe I'll touch on that. But uh, And then for the attractions, I said, okay, well, there's this benefit of nostalgia and positive memories and... uh, childhood memories and a ton of visual and uh, like uh, details uh, and all that can counteract the who, what, where, and why and uh, become a point and they can also play into the plot. And so once it became that point that it was like, okay, it's, uh, it's not about her just exploring the theme park. It's about her spending time with each of these attractions with a purpose we might not know or understand right away. I don't know. I think that, like, uh, it just became a much different story than if you're exploring who is she, who is she, why is she here, what is the uh, situation that, like, uh, it's much more dreamlike. And that was the goal. These challenges in the story also offer this dreamy-like opportunity and uh, this ability to to, to dabble in, in a new way, in a new narrative voice, and in a new way with a projection in what gaps will the audience fill in. Now, what I realized is that that has two sides or two edges to it, and that, that was very informative, uh, was that uh, when you play in this level of projection and narrative voice, uh, it does have, with some listeners, it, it was, uh, I think, the idea of the, like, uh, one, everybody has a different relationship with childhood and, and children and uh, parental figures uh, in that, but also the idea that the narrative voice was, I think, like, uh, talking directly to someone that wasn't the listener, uh 
like uh, that was where the edge it's like okay well then it really depends on how the listener is projecting onto the characters uh and if they're project like that then that's totally out of my control um i mean in some sense it is not totally out of my control but like this type of dabbling where the character the attraction was always kind of talking directly back at her uh, but it was a non-intimacy it wasn't talking to you the listener it was talking to her and i think that's like a disruptive level like it, like a disrupted uh for some people uh, just a strange small shift in narrative direction uh like one of the intimacies of podcasts where it's like oh well most of the time the podcast is just for you right you're listening it's just for you and i think that maybe created some dissonance to people that really got in deep uh only well, not everybody i mean but just a small percentage that said oh that's interesting i would have never have known that if i didn't try it and i could relate to it i said oh i think i understand like it's a strange uh uh, what is, it? I don't even know if it's third, second or first person talking to, uh, like it's just, there is some dissonance. Cause it's like, wait, the ride is, is sounding like it's talking to me, but it's talking to her. And, uh, like, uh, it depends on what people are saying. Well, what is your intention talking to her? You know, you know, I, I, it was just really a, a big learning experience. Uh, and always part of the podcast is like, uh, it's not going to work unless the podcast evolves and changes. Like your brain bots are going to catch it and and uh, and interrupt it. It's not going to be sustainable. I can't keep making, couldn't put this much work into something that's only repetitive and and uh, um, um yeah. And so, uh, what's my point? My point is uh, the podcast is always going to dabble. And oh, what can we do with a narrative voice? And where is this? What, what like uh, aspects of who's telling the story? Who are the whom or whom are they telling it to? Who or whom are they telling it for? And what is the intention? What is the narrator narrator's intention? Maybe that was something I should like. I, I think I probably could have overcome that. Um, but I wouldn't have known that by making that clear in some reassuring way, like interrupting the projection or adding uh, uh, one more screen of projection to say, okay, all of these characters, I never gave, like, I never gave the attractions. I mean, this is because it's a big part of the story. So I guess it would have irrevocable. It was the same issue that came up with naming the series is that uh, uh, by uh, telling the attra- intention of the attractions, it would derail the mystery of the story and the dream density, dream density, I, I thought. Uh, and as far as that, the majority of the feedback I got was that this was one of the uh, densest episodes, so it put most people to sleep. Uh, but uh, most of the people that are, are episode listeners, uh, uh, like, uh, really related, uh, and that the, the aspects that drew me about... Uh, uh, relational, familial relations, and solving problems in an episodic fashion, and, and in a place uh, rich with nostalgia and detail, like those all like uh, succeeded. It was just a matter of what. I guess the main point is that the, because each attraction's intention was a mystery. If it wasn't a mystery, if I'd said, "Okay, 
Well, Curly Sue is your aunt, like the same, like if I made the relation more clear in why Curly Sue, the attraction, but that's a different story. This wasn't the story I was telling, but if I did do that, it would have changed the story of like, uh, well, Curly Sue wants to help you learn this lesson uh, because she's your aunt and she needs you to do this. Uh, that would have uh, given a screen, a different screen to, for people to project on. I guess, uh, and, and maybe I'm just theorizing. Uh, but the the story was different than that. And again, I've told this, I'm not going to, like, uh, this story is much more, the, one of the most open to projection and interpretation uh, series. It is the most uh, that we've done. Uh and I wanted to give people the freedom to have their own constructs and meaning. The deep listeners, uh, which I know is a tiny, tiny percentage of people, but you invest your time exploring the depths of the stories, and I invest my time in creating them for you, and that's part of our compact. And, yeah, the compact, nobody's perfect, and uh, some of my meaning will leak out and say, well, that's not the same as the meaning I was finding. I mean, that's part of the, one of the hard parts of creation and consumption of creation or art or whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, I don't want, I, I felt like even, uh, so even giving the intention or the purposes other than the episodic purpose, which was still somewhat mysterious, uh, and even by naming the series that it would have been, um, it would have impinged on that in some way. And I, I struggle with it because it's a very forward premise. There's a girl who lives in an abandoned theme park. Okay, abandoned is a word you probably can't use on sleep with me, at least on a regular basis. Like the situational basis, I think, is fine. But a girl who lives in like an empty theme, okay, empty is probably not a good term for sleep with me. But it's also like, well, is it abandoned or is it not? Is it empty? Is it not? Uh, um. I'm not raising those questions to 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 discuss the meaning, but more of like uh, when I'm trying to figure out, uh, like, uh, is she a girl or is she a young woman? Even to me, well, no, she's both. She's a child at points. She's a girl and she's a young woman at points. Uh, and then it was like I didn't want to do, it, and it was. Uh, I also didn't want to um, do anything diminutive, uh, diminutive. Uh, however, you say that. Uh, to her because I had developed a deep relationship with her as a character and uh, I, I didn't want to just name it something uh, that would take any power away from her and her mystery and her right I guess as a character to her own journey and her own meaning and her open own openness to projection of meaning um, and that by labeling her uh, it just felt dangerous to me with the story that it was like, uh, especially early on, it's like, I don't know who she, like, I don't have a, like, uh, in episode three or four, our relationship was, you know, different than by the end in our, whatever, our level of, uh, uh, my level of understanding of her and, and watching her make her own choices. Uh, so that's kind of why I didn't name the series. Uh, I guess it kind of goes into like breaking the story. I'm trying to think, like, I think I've talked about this before, but let me think on, like, uh, which one I can most easily remember. I mean, what I would normally start with is, like, I would try to find a theme first, and I have different ideas uh, 
or ways of finding a theme for an episode, usually based on reading or something. And I say, okay, well, there's a theme of like a, a type of power struggle or a type of lesson, life lesson. And like I would brainstorm on something general like that. This is how I do most episodes. Uh, and then I would say for this one, I'd say, okay, well, what theme park attractions, uh, not so much fit that theme, but just call to me. Okay, so flume ride. I don't think we did a flume ride, but uh, I wish, you know, that would be season two if we do it. Uh, or, okay, a uh, boat ride. Okay, like, uh, so then I was thinking about, um, you know, the theme that it became is, is open to your interpretation. But uh, they said, okay, it's a small world. And I said, okay, well, let's try to re like, uh, what theme would we put on that and how would we change it? Uh, so then he thought about a uh, toy town or whatever. And I said, okay. And then how has the ride changed from when it was a functional theme park, uh, to the present? And the theme usually helps determine that, uh, to say, okay, well, there's something uh, at the beginning and the end that's much different than the middle. And all of it was different from the intended story of the attraction then there's a subversive layer of like, well, what was the intended uh, purpose of this attraction about toys and uh, playing with toys and who sponsored it? And then it's the relationship with the character and her relationship with what she sees and how she negotiates that. And what is she, what is the, uh, what is her need or what does she feel like the attractions need or the situational need is and then just writing that out, uh, like, uh, it, for Small World, they didn't look up a map or any pictures of the attraction. I just went on my general idea of my mind and the idea of the song and the idea of uh, robotic kids playing with stuff or whatever, paper mache kids, and uh, the idea of a drained canal versus a canal full of water, which would make sense in the situation. And then another post like the feral cats of the park and thinking about them and, and her relationship with them. And then also thinking about like introducing an idea of her looking out at the outside world. And that was actually open. I said, well, what would she see? And I remember coming back to it in rewrites and being like, well, would she see this? What would she see? Well, like, uh, how does she feel when she's looking out? And I mean, that was really a lot of it. Uh, trying to really bury that in the depths and the thickness of the story uh, in as many layers as they could. It's like, how is she feeling? Uh, and uh, what is it like? How are her feelings driving the plot? Or how are these attractions uh, uh, like uh, is she, she didn't, she was by herself, you know, like how all these rides are meant to be consumed by groups of people. And, uh, she, she's exploring her purpose and meaning in this world, which is her world, her world at all, or her world in all. So I don't know. I think like, I, I just really, really, uh, it was a real departure. I think, uh, a lot less humor. Most of the humor was through the narration instead of uh, situational humor or even character-based humor. It was like observational uh, by the narrator observing or making light of things. Um, but, uh, 
Um, and then having the attractions is a, another layer of mystery because it's like, are these like, uh, I don't want to even talk anymore about it. just another uh, thick layer of mystery. Uh, so it's, it's different in a departure. And I think like, uh, when you say sleep with me first, uh, and, and when you think about the most successful things on sleep with me are always at the margins, uh, and so this one was definitely at the margins because there was a small percentage of people that said, hey, this, uh, whatever the narrative tone, uh, it didn't work for me. Uh, but then uh, there was a percentage of people that said, this is the most sleepiest thing uh, since whatever, Claude Neon or something. And I think that might have been the most sleepy thing uh, before this. Yeah, the North Pole got a, like a big level of sleep. Uh, so it's usually when something works, it's like, uh, or doesn't work, uh, like the things that don't work for, for uh, uh, like, uh, if you give feedback about something that doesn't work, then the other side, it's like it has the most intense super fans. Yeah, like on-location episodes. I guess on-location episodes are more even. Uh, I would say with the on-location episode, like 33% of people, they say, well, I just listen to the podcast, like, uh, 33% of people say I won't listen to them, and 33% said if every episode was on location, I'd be happy. Or Ray, I think Ray's more like 70% would listen to every episode if Ray did it, and 33% of people would stop listening to the podcast. Uh, so, yeah, that's a little bit about uh, that. was a different journey, and this was a, just a different series a little bit, and then the next one will be much another departure in a return uh, it'll be a return for sure. It's just some elements and characters. Uh, like if I record, I mean, ideally I'll be recording that, uh, like around a week from today or a week and a day or two. Um, and that'll be a departure into something, uh, a little bit different, another narrative voice and familiar with a uh, new twist. Uh, but I appreciate it. And, uh, if you're listening to this, because you say, well, like, as you can hear, like, all these ideas come from some mysterious place uh, that I don't quite understand. And I don't know if it's within me or within my imagination or coming from a collective unconscious or a true uh, story swamp uh, uh, that wants the stories to be shared out in the world. And I'm lucky to have, like, uh, an opportunity to go there and walk around but it all comes from like a, a also relational thing to say, hey, let me know a little bit more about this idea. And having uh, slowly developed that relationship with myself and still being imperfect, uh, I want you to develop that relationship for you with yourself and your ideas. Uh, and say, hey, why don't you draw a picture about this or well, you know, let's take piano lessons. You say, hey, you might not be able to act on it or do it right away. But you can say, hey, I like that idea. Um, can't do it right now, but let me give you a hug. Because uh, that's what I try to do with this podcast, too, is just give you a little hug and say, snuggle in. Uh, I'm here to help, okay? Good night. Uh, thanks, iTunes reviews or, uh, or an Apple podcast. Uh, thanks, everybody, for taking the time to review the show. Uh, Molly, um, Amalia, Amalia Seven says magic hills simultaneously 
simultaneously hilarious and boring, soothing voice, careful patience, careful pacing, tangents within tangents, mistakes within mistakes. Uh, to create a podcast that helps you sleep doesn't work. Uh, uh, I don't know how he hit on the magical sleep recipe, but it's effective. Uh, just had a baby, and I have to sleep when I can at random times of the day. This has been a huge help. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, VM says the podcast has changed and uh, they, 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 they prefer the old shows, uh, which is good because our sponsors help keep all the old shows free. Or really the listeners that support the sponsors, so thank you to them. Ella264 from the UK says, genuinely works. Fantastic show, works perfectly for getting to sleep or just getting your mind to switch off from worries or repetitive thoughts. Highly recommend uh, X Galabar says it actually works. Uh, they're from Australia. First played the podcast, turned off in five seconds, uh, thinking no way. But I went back to it, and sure enough, I was getting the most restful sleep I have gotten in a long time. I can listen to episodes over and over, fall asleep quickly. Recommend you give it a try and be patient with it. Uh, this dude will definitely lull you to sleep, and if you're wide awake, he's also very funny. Uh, all moo says, uh, love, uh, we love more super cuts of afterglass slippers. Sometimes it takes me a long time and I get distracted if I switch stories by accident. Uh, flying ape, uh, what did, wait, what did he just say? Prepare to be confused to sleep. Uh, why did post a review that contained a joke, uh, about a pi- pi- plot twist in a recent series? Uh, but to be honest, I don't remember. I've listened to every episode since I subscribed. Scooter will engage in circular conversations with himself about the meaning of words, if they really exist. Uh, maybe he should keep a dream, dream journal until they become a real word. He often questions the pronunciation of simple words uh, like uh, pronunciation. Uh, you get the picture. You'll fall asleep. You'll be confused. And you'll never have answers, but you'll have sleep. The best episode is Talking Bogs. Because uh, I seriously thought he was in a bog. Actually, it really wasn't a bog that night. Uh, I think that, uh, like, uh, in those location episodes, I'm usually there. Uh, but thanks, uh, Grape Ape or Flying Ape. Uh, Penny X is, uh, says it from the UK, says, thank you. I use it every night for my weird sleep patterns. Very grateful. Bugs EM for Australia. Uh, love it. Starting to use this podcast to help fall asleep a month ago. Works so well. I play it every night. Still don't have a clue what happens in the stories. Uh, if you're having trouble falling asleep, uh, this will be a game changer. Thanks. Uh, Delatastic. Uh, part of my morning routine. I wake up hours early, just the sleep phones, put them over my eyes, and I'm rolled back to sleep with a soothing voice. Uh, my favorite is Summer of the Horse. Uh, also take you on business trips, and since I'm uh, from the Bay Area, your voice makes me feel homey and secure. Thanks, sleep with me. Thanks, Dilly. And finally, my kind of luck says, wonderful. Scoots help me sleep every night like a friend sitting by your bed, helping you drift off until you gently drift off. Love it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, and good night.